2023 remote meeting of the San Francisco Board of Appeals. President Rick Swig will be the presiding officer tonight, and he is joined by Vice President Jose Lopez, Commissioner Alex Lumberg, Commissioner John Trezvina, and Commissioner J.R. Epler. Uh, we also expect uh, City Attorney John Givner. I don't see him on yet, um, but he, we expect him here to provide any needed legal advice. At the controls is the board's legal assistant, Alec Longway, and I'm Julie Rosenberg, the board's executive director. We will also be joined by representatives from the city departments that will be presenting before the board this evening. Tina Tam, the deputy zoning administrator, representing the planning department, and Matthew Green, chief building inspector, representing the department of building inspection. We also expect Chris Buck, urban forester, representing San Francisco Public Works, Bureau of Urban Forestry. The board rules of presentation are as follows. Appellants, permit holders, and department respondents each are given seven minutes to present their case and three minutes for rebuttal. People affiliated with these parties must include their comments within these seven or three minute periods. Members of the public who are not affiliated with the parties have up to three minutes each to address the board and no rebuttal. Time may be limited to two minutes if the agenda is long or if there are large number of speakers. Mr. Longway, our legal assistant, will give you a verbal warning 30 seconds before your time is up. Four votes are required to grant an appeal or to modify a permit or determination. If you have questions about requesting a rehearing, the board rules or hearing schedules, please email board staff at boardofappeals at sfgov.org. Now, public access and participation are of paramount importance to the board. SFGov TV is broadcasting and streaming this hearing live, and we will have the ability to receive public comment for each item on today's agenda. SFGov TV is also providing closed captioning for this meeting. To watch the hearing on TV, go to SFGov TV, cable channel 78. Please note that it will be rebroadcast on Fridays at 4 p.m. on channel 26. A link to the live stream is found on the homepage of our website at sfgov.org forward slash BOA. Now, public comment can be provided in two ways. One, uh, via Zoom, go to our website, sfgov.org forward slash BOA, and click on the hearings link and then the Zoom link. Or you can call in by telephone, 1-669-900-6833, and enter webinar ID 827-9082-6350. And again, SFGov TV is broadcasting and streaming the phone number and access instructions across the bottom of the screen if you're watching the live stream or broadcast. To block your phone number when calling in, first dial star six seven, then the phone number. Listen for the public comment portion for your item to be called and dial star nine, which is the equivalent of raising your hand so that we know you want to speak. You will be brought into the hearing when it is your turn. You may have to dial star six to unmute yourself and you will have three minutes. Our legal assistant will provide you with a verbal warning 30 seconds before your time is up. Please note that there is a delay between the live proceedings and what is broadcast and live streamed on TV and the internet. Therefore, it is very important that people calling in reduce or turn off the volume on their TVs or computers. Otherwise, there is interference with the meeting. If any of the participants or attendees on Zoom need a disability accommodation or technical assistance, you can make a request in the chat function to Alec Longway, the board's legal assistant, or send an email to boardofappeals at sfgov.org. Now, the chat function cannot be used to provide public comment or opinions. Now, we will swear in or affirm all those who intend to testify. Please note that any member of the public may speak without taking an oath pursuant to their rights under the Sunshine Ordinance. If you intend to testify at any of tonight's proceedings and wish to have the board give your testimony evidentiary weight, raise your right hand and say, I do, after you've been sworn in or affirmed. Do you swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Okay, thank you. If you're a participant and you're not speaking, please put your Zoom speaker on mute. 
we will move on to item number one. This is general public comment. This is an opportunity for anyone who would like to speak on a matter within the board's jurisdiction, but that is not on tonight's calendar. Is there anyone here uh, for general public comment? Please raise your hand. I do not see any hands raised, so we'll move on to item number two. Commissioner comments and questions, commissioners? Uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, wish everybody a happy new year and a, a, a safe and a healthy one. And uh, uh, apologize to any member of the public that was inconvenienced by the rescheduling of this meeting into a virtual uh, format versus in person. We strive to be in person. And in fact, we are required to be there except during uh, um, health and security issues. And I, I felt that uh, uh, this this was a, a public uh, health crisis with the weather today. So um, we rescheduled it and I hope um, uh, to the virtual and I hope that nobody was inconvenienced. Uh, thank you very much for your patience with that. Uh, tonight, commissioners, um, when you have a question, uh, would you please use the, I believe, um, Alec, that we can just use the raise the hand. Um, yes, is raise hand. Yes, and then I can most easily uh, identify you. I don't think that anybody except for uh, Commissioner Lopez participated in one of our um, our Zoom events uh, prior to this one. So that's the protocol for this evening. I'll do my best to manage it, being out of practice as I am. Anybody else? Commissioner Lemberg has his hand raised. I do. Uh, I want to echo President Swig's uh, Happy New Year to all of those returning faces and also all of you who I haven't met before. Happy New Year to all. Um, I wanted to uh, acknowledge something. So we, uh, we commissioners had to do a harassment prevention training before New Year's um, uh, as part of the city's requirements. And I formerly uh, have uh, both drafted and provided trainings for uh, harassment prevention to public entities. So I thought I wasn't going to learn anything new, but I in fact did. Um, and I want to uh, share something, uh, which is that uh, it is my responsibility as a person with a non-traditional gender identity to announce my pronouns and, uh, and other things uh, to my fellow commissioners. Uh, and, and my preferences, and that is that I use they, them pronouns, I identify as non-binary, and uh, rather than the term Mr., uh, Mr. or Ms., uh, I use the term mix, uh, spelled M-X, uh, pronounced like the word mix, uh, and uh, that is all I wanted to say. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any other commissioners? Okay. Is there any public comment on this item? Please raise your hand. Okay, I don't see any public comments, so we will move on to item number three, the adoption of the minutes. Commissioners, before you for a discussion of possible adoption are the minutes of the December 14th, 2022 meeting. Commissioners, any corrections or do I hear a motion, please? I move to adopt the minutes as presented. Okay, is there any public comment on that motion? I don't see any public comments. So on Commissioner Trezvenia's motion to adopt the minutes, Vice President Lopez? Aye. Commissioner Lemberg? Aye. Commissioner Epler? Aye. President Swig? Aye. So that motion carries five to zero and the minutes are adopted. We are now moving on to item number four. This is a special item on presentation by the planning department. 
Kate Connor, Housing Implementation Program Manager with the Planning Department, will give a review of state housing legislation, including the state density bonus, SB 35, AB 2011, and SB 330. Welcome, Ms. Connor. We look forward to your presentation. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to share my screen. Can everybody see it? Yes, Perfect. we can see it. Yes. All right, so good evening, President Swig and Commissioners, Kate Connor, Planning Department staff. Thank you so much for having me. So this presentation is going to include a summary of state density bonus law and the San Francisco review process. I'm also going to provide some additional information about the intersection with SB 35, as well as the SB 35 process. Then I will discuss planning, dis planning commission, as well as department discretion. I will then provide a quick overview of AB 2011 and finally end with a short summary of the Housing Crisis Act, also known as SB 330. So the state density bonus law was established by the state of California in 1979 as an incentive-based program for providing on-site affordable units. The program has certain eligibility requirements, namely the project must contain five units or more, it must be residential or mixed use, and it must provide affordable units on site for a period of 55 years. If those affordable units are also counting towards San Francisco's inclusionary requirement, the units must remain affordable for life of the project. State density bonus has three components, the density bonus, incentives and concessions, as well as waivers. So the amount of density bonus is dependent upon the number of affordable units and the level of affordability provided in the project. If you provide more affordable units, you will get additional density. In order to accommodate those extra units, a project may need relief from code requirements. And this relief can come in the form of incentives and concessions or waivers. So what is an incentive or a concession? An incentive or concession must reduce the cost of the project. These can be development standards, and they can include such planning code requirements as open space, height, and ground floor ceiling height. The number is limited between one and four, and it is dependent upon the affordability of the project. Let's consider an example, ground floor ceiling height. If you were to reduce the ground floor ceiling height, it may reduce the overall height of the building, affecting the construction type, and thereby reducing the cost of the project. The city is incredibly limited in its discretion, and I will probably repeat myself many times with this statement, and can only deny an incentive or a concession if it does not result in a cost reduction or if it would have a specific adverse impact upon public health or safety. So what is a waiver? A waiver is an exception to a development standard. These are typically volumetric requirements that are necessary to accommodate the project with the increased density and the requested incentives and concessions. Examples can include height, bulk, rear yard. A project may require relief from the height requirement in order to accommodate the, the extra units. As you may have noticed, I also included height as a potential incentive. So how can you determine whether an exception is an incentive or a waiver? And so for that, we have to look at each project individually. 
The same code requirement could be either an incentive or a waiver depending upon the specifics of the project. We've also seen height as an incentive in high-rise construction, where maybe that extra height isn't necessary for the project, but the project sponsors demonstrate that the additional height reduces the overall cost of the project. Again, with waivers, the city is incredibly limited in its discretion, and we can only deny a waiver if it is deemed unnecessary or if it ha would have a specific adverse impact upon public health or safety. So what everybody always is wondering is what is that intersection with San Francisco's inclusionary program? So consider a 100-unit base project. If the on-site inclusionary rate is 20%, the project is already entitled to a density bonus under state density bonus law. Although those bonus units must be market rate, and the number of affordable units remains the same, in San Francisco, we do apply the affordable housing fee. How this works is by applying the fee on the entire project and providing a credit for those on-site units. So given the complexities surrounding state density bonus law, the department has published Planning Director Bulletin 6 implementing the state density bonus law. This bulletin details San Francisco interpretations, including how we apply state density bonus law in form-based districts, which was something that until recently, the state did not contemplate. The bulletin also will detail how we process state density bonus projects. For conventional state density bonus projects, the Planning Commission must make findings as to whether the project has a specific adverse impact on public health or safety. And these findings are not discretionary. If there is an underlying entitlement, like a conditional use authorization or a large project authorization, the process will remain the same. However, the Planning Commission's discretion is incredibly limited for these projects. Finally, state density bonus in and of itself does not affect CEQA review. But this is where SB 35 enters the picture. So SB 35 is fairly new. I guess it's not really that new. It was effective in 2018, time flies. It provides for a ministerial review path, which is no CEQA. And this is for projects that meet certain affordability levels. It's a statewide program and it is based off of the RENA projections. So there's basically kind of two programs within SB 35, one for those jurisdictions that are underproducing in above, above moderate income and one for those underproducing in low income and below. Currently, San Francisco is meeting its RENA housing production goals for the above moderate income, but we are not meeting the RENA targets for below 80% AMI. So the applicable program for San Francisco is to provide 50% of the units at 80% AMI or below to qualify. So what can an SB35 project expect? Well, there's no secret review because it is a ministerial review path. There's also no discretionary entitlements, and that would be your conditional use authorization or your large project authorization, provided that all the eligibility criteria are met. There are expedited review timelines. And before, when we were talking about state density bonus and how its sole application does not affect process or CEQA, when you couple it with SB 35, neither CEQA review nor discretionary entitlements are required. So the state law outlines a number of criteria to qualify for SB 35. I mean, this includes controls on demolition, prevailing wages, project size, and a project must comply with objective standards. 
So objective standards have been used kind of throughout state law recently, very often. And so I want to dig into that definition a little bit. So bear with me. The actual definition is somewhat long, but objective standards are standards that involve no personal or subjective judgment by a public official and are uniformly verifiable by reference to an external and uniform benchmark or criterion available and knowable by both the development applicant or proponent and the public official prior to submittal. So more simplistically stated, when you think of an objective requirement, you're thinking of something that's more quantitative, like rear yard, setbacks, height. When you're thinking of a non-objective requirement or a subjective requirement, it's more design guidelines that will rely on character or subjective determinations. So SB 35 recognizes state density bonus projects, including all of the necessary waivers, the incentives and concessions as meeting objective standards. So in terms of project types, you know, SB 35 requires that at least 50% of the projects of the project be affordable to households at 80% AMI or below. Kind of from a planning perspective, we've kind of broken this up into two different project types. There are the projects that are 100% affordable, and then there's the mixed income projects that provide at least 50% of the units um, as affordable. In terms of process, there's also a relatively new requirement for notification to the California Native American tribes. Um, this is a 30-day notice to see if there's any interest in participating in a scoping session. And then if there's no response or the California Native American tribes decline, then the actual SB 35 timelines will begin when the project sponsor submits the application with the building permit. So the notification to the California Native American tribes must be done and completed prior to the timeline starting. There's no neighborhood notification, which is keeping with previous interpretations for how the planning department handles ministerial permits. And there's no discretionary review since that is in and of itself a discretionary approval. And then finally, there are the really expedited timelines for um, projects you're looking at either 90 or 180 days for planning review. So in terms of implementation strategy, we published um, a bulletin in 2017 outlining what our implementation strategy was, and then we followed up with an application packet once it became effective. In terms of project approvals, as you can see, we've had uh, 21 since January 2018. That's resulted in over 2,600 units and over 2,300 deed-restricted affordable units. Um, this, the fact that there's so many affordable is really due to the fact that the vast majority of these projects are the 100% affordable projects. We've only approved three 50% affordable projects. In addition, we have 10 new projects that are in our pipeline, um, almost all of which are affordable. And I do apologize, this map is slightly out of date, but gender, I think this is only showing maybe 16 of the 21 projects, but you can generally see where they're located. You know, there is a concentration on the eastern side of the city and downtown, um, and all but one of these projects was a state density bonus project. So this kind of gets to the question about like, what discretion do we have? Um, it is incredibly limited when using either of these state programs. So design, fenestration, materials, those are all something that we can really weigh in. 
on. But, you know, again, the city is incredibly limited. You know, we can't reduce the density. We or cause shifts to the project so that it may become financially infeasible. And that's pursuant to the Housing Accountability Act. In addition, we can't deny any of the incentives, concessions, or waivers without these findings of specific adverse impacts on public health and safety as defined by state law. And that is such an incredibly high bar. Now, both of these programs are state law, which we are required to comply with. And although our discretion is limited, and this has been, you know, I think it's been very challenging, not only for all of our commissions and elected officials, but also for planning staff, we have been able to approve over 2,300 affordable units, which is definitely notable. So now I wanted to look a little bit at AB 2011, which will become effective in July of 2023. So we have a little bit of time. Um, I wanted to kind of pair this with SB 35 because it's also a ministerial program. And we anticipate a very similar implementation approach as SB 35 with some additional resources devoted to mapping and identifying eligible, um, eligible parcels. So AB 2011 does provide that ministerial review, um, but it does have different eligibility criteria. And it has two separate paths, one for 100% affordable and one for mixed income projects. And so we wanted to take kind of a deeper look at like, well, if you're a 100% affordable project, what is the difference when you apply under SB 35 versus AB 2011 if both are ministerial? And AB 2011 does have less labor provisions. It does permit you to demolish housing. It does have potential density and height increases depending upon the location. And there isn't a restriction on developing historic properties. So diving into a little bit more of the details of 2011, um, there are kind of these two types of projects. There's the 100% affordable projects and then the mixed income projects. And those projects must you know, provide between 13 and 30% of the units as affordable. And that depends on the tenure as well as the AMI level. Um, projects must pay prevailing wages and projects of 50 or more um, units must provide healthcare and apprenticeship programs. And then all eligible projects must provide relocation assistance for existing commercial tenants. They have to complete a phase one environmental assessment and they cannot build any units within 500 feet of a freeway. So we've kind of produced some very preliminary maps um, at the planning department just to kind of get an understanding about where these sites might be located. Um, for the 100% affordable projects, AB 2011 applies everywhere except for RH, RM, RTO, PDR, M, Sally, MUR, WMUO, and SUDs along Van Ness. That's kind of quite a variety of random districts that you wouldn't necessarily think wouldn't be able to take advantage of this. And while these districts do principally permit retail and office, or most of them do, they don't qualify either because they don't principally permit commercial uses to be at least one third of the total development. This law was really geared at being able to develop kind of commercial corridors and take corridors and take advantage of commercial zoning. So the yellow denotes sites that are eligible for streamlining. And then the blue areas are eligible for streamlining. And then they're also within a half mile of a major transit stop. And so unless the existing uh, zoning is more generous, which in many cases it is when you kind of look at these ones that are a little bit more situated on the eastern side, then you can get a density benefit of up to one unit per 545 square feet of lot area and a height benefit of a minimum of 65 feet. So for mixed income projects, 
AB 2011 applies to the same zoning districts. It has the same height and density benefits, but it also requires that projects have 50 feet of frontage on streets that are 70 to 150 feet wide. So that's why there's such a reduction in the number of parcels on this map. Um, both the eligible districts and specific parcels um, as described here are really shown on the map or, or how they're shown is very preliminary because there's still the eligibility requirements in terms of uh, like, for instance, if it's on a court, if it's on the Cortese list or if it has, you know, protected species and that type of thing. So this is really just looking at the zoning um, and then really kind of looking at um, the right-of-ways. So kind of diving into the projects that don't qualify. Um, so the additional restrictions, both 100% affordable and mixed income projects do not qualify if on the Cortese list of hazardous substances or within a protected um, species habitat. And so AB 2011 draws directly from SB 35 with these eligibility requirements. And one quick note, AB 2668, which is now effective, did make some modifications to the Cortese list eligibility criteria for SB 35 and does allow the state water board or DTSC or a local agency to provide a letter say, stating that the uh, site is suitable for residential uses. In addition, sites cannot contain or be adjacent to anything that's industrial. And then for mixed income projects, they don't qualify if they're demolishing housing that has been occupied in the last 10 years. And this is kind of taken for SB 35, but this particular requirement only applies for mixed income, not for the affordable projects. So the mixed income projects have minimum affordability requirements. Um, but projects must also meet San Francisco's inclusionary requirements, which are typically higher. In addition, there are some design requirements for uh, the mixed, uh, pro mixed income projects. Um, there's some parking setbacks. There's some setbacks from adjacent buildings um, along side streets and interior um, lot lines. And then some of the setbacks may be reduced by ordinance by the Board of Supervisors but projects must meet all objective design standards in the underlying zoning, very similar to SB 35. And so this will also be kind of similar when you look at state density bonus projects, since we consider those to be completely co-compliant, including the incentives, concessions, and waivers, those state density bonus projects could also take advantage of AB 2011. And so like SB 35, if the project meets all these requirements, then there's some streamlining benefits. You know, again, the review is on a ministerial basis, so that cuts down on quite a bit of time within the planning department because there is not CEQA review. Um, and then the timelines for code compliance review and approval are the exact same ones as SB 35. So you're looking at either that 90 or 180 days, um, depending on the size of the project. Um, and so kind of before I switch gears to the Housing Crisis Act, you know, again, I just wanted to mention that AB 2011 isn't effective until July 2023, and we're really working on developing our resources, bulletins, and a full implementation strategy. So if there is any interest, I'm kind of happy to come back once we kind of get all of that ironed out a little bit. So now with the Housing Crisis Act. So the Housing Crisis Act became effective in 
um, January 2020, and that was with Senate Bill um, SB 330, and it was recently revised with SB 8 in January of 2022. The Housing Crisis Act suspends certain restrictions on the development of new housing and expedites the permitting of housing as well. And there are three main areas of the bill. You know, this was kind of a kitchen sink of a bill. It amended multiple sections of the government code, but we've kind of broken it up into three different categories. The imposition of new development standards, changes to the project review process, and replacement and relocation requirements. We've also published yet another bulletin, Planning Director Bulletin 7, to detail how San Francisco um, is implementing this bill. So looking at the imposition of new development standards. So currently we are in a housing emergency and during the housing emergency, we can only create objective design standards. So we can't, we can't create any sort of design guidelines that can be enforced that are subjective. Um, also, we have to tie any reduction of zone capacity to an increase in zone capacity. So if you are going to be down zoning um, any parcel, there has to be a corresponding up zoning that actually happens at the same time. Um, and then finally, we can't reduce zone capacity. And so this can include any sort of reduction of development standards, including height, density, or FAR. It could include any increase in yards or setbacks. And then finally, it also includes any sort of moratorium on housing approvals. So anytime that we try and put that cap on a certain amount of housing projects that can be um, approved. So there are also several changes to how we review projects. As part of SB 330, the Permit Streamlining Act was amended just to change the timelines for um, projects that are subject to an EIR and how quickly they must be approved. Um, the law also established uh, what's called the preliminary application. And so the preliminary application is set to freeze planning code requirements. And it, it, it kind of vests a project in a way. Um, and so we've created a preliminary application that's available on our website that does do this. Um, and then for code compliant projects, there's a limit of five hearings. And this even includes continuances and appeals unless the continuance is requested by the sponsor. Finally, too, SB 330 doesn't affect CEQA, and so CEQA appeal hearings will not count towards this limit. And then finally, um, historic determinations must be made at the time that the development application is considered complete. And this prevents any sort of jurisdiction from trying to landmark a property midway through the review process and kind of stopping the development. So the kind of final bucket of the Housing Crisis Act includes the replacement and relocation provisions. And so generally speaking, you know, housing projects must create as many, if not more, units as are demolished or moved as part of the project. It also defines what's called a protected unit. And a protected unit can be one of four things, either a deed-restricted unit, a unit that is subject to rent control, and we interpret that as price control, um, a unit that is rented to a low-income household within the last five years, or a unit that's been withdrawn from the rental market under the Ellis Act in the last 10 years. And so the protected unit um, definition becomes really important because there's special provisions for replacement. So for instance, if you have deed-restricted units, they must be replaced with deed-restricted units at the same income level. If the units were occupied by low-income units, then these units must be replaced at the same income level, and also there will be a deed restriction. And then finally, if the units were rent-controlled, they must either be replaced with rent-controlled units in a rental building or deed-restricted units in an ownership building. 
And so how are we determining this? Um, we do have, we require tenant affidavits um, if there's been any tenants in the last five years stating what their income level was. And we only do this five-year look back and that's what's required by state law. And then finally, there are right of first refusal and right of return requirements. So for lower income households, a right of first refusal to a comparable unit in the replacement project is required. And there are some exceptions for single family homes as well as 100% affordable housing. Um, low income households are eligible for relocation benefits. And so currently what is offered at a local level in the city of San Francisco is actually more beneficial than what the state requirement is. So we're just using our kind of local relocation benefit requirements. Then for all households, there is a right to remain in the unit until six months before construction. And so kind of finally, like how are we documenting all of these requirements? So currently we include findings in our planning commission motions. Um, we also craft conditions of approval, which are recorded against the property. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I can definitely be available to return and provide you know, a presentation on AB 2011 implementation. Um, I know this was a lot of information, but happy to answer any questions. Okay, thank you so much. We have questions from President Swig and Commissioner Epler. President Swig. Uh, thank you very much for that very thorough and uh, uh, somewhat like hooking your mouth up to a fire hydrant presentation. Um, I, I will be the first to extend that invitation uh, for you to give a, a a further review uh, because I, it, what I what I was finding is that a lot of rules are changing, or there seems to be a bi bifurcation between uh, what we do under nor normal circumstances and without special terms and conditions, and uh, then those circumstances driven by those uh, those new new pieces of legislation. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting for us all to sort out in the future. Um, uh, uh, this may have been covered in your presentation, uh, but I want some cl clarity on it. As part of the streamlining, there was a reference to a limitation <clears throat> of total hearings. Um, uh, is there any restrictions to on uh, on appeals uh, that would directly, obviously, affect this commission? Yeah, no, for sure. And so under SB 330, that five hearing limit does include appeals. The only hearings that are not included are CEQA appeals because it's not affecting any sort of environmental review or having any impact on CEQA. And so that's something where we've also advised our planning commission when we're looking at the number of hearings that, you know, we we're just we can't really be continuing things that like we used to. You know, we really do have to act, you know, as quickly as possible because we only have those five hearings. That being said, I will say that the state law doesn't really tell you what happens if you exceed five hearings. So, but it is something that we're trying. And so that's, that also comes into play with like rec and park hearings, with HBC hearings, all of those count. Yeah. The only ones that we're not counting is if a project sponsor requests a continuance. So, so if we happen to be the fifth hearing and, uh, and we find, uh, some some lack of information or something that is a hurdle that prevents us from making a decision that's where it may become problematic for us in the future okay um it, uh, a few weeks ago we had a um an item uh where 
a new structure was built uh, mid-block in the in the Marina District, and um, and it fell under the new um, help me somebody uh, the the new state law related to you can build something that that uh, uh, in that you couldn't build before basically and it was it was interesting that it was in in direct conflict to um something that was uh, that in a, in a in a variance hearing would have been a a, a non-starter in that it was uh something that that was completely out of character with the neighborhood yet under the new state law which overruled the, the local law it was perfectly acceptable um, and it caused people like me who've been doing this for a while to scratch our heads uh, because what we've were have been what has been beaten into our heads related to a variance, for example, where if it if it differs significantly from the, the character of the neighborhood or something uh, uh, that is not in keeping with the neighborhood, then that's a no go. But in this case, state law said that doesn't matter anymore. Um, th this may be an impossible question for you to ask, uh, but where, where do you see uh, that we will run into uh, this, these new state mandates uh, coming into direct conflict, which have been tried and true mandates, untouchable items under San Francisco uh, rules. And you can global in your answer because the it, it, impossible to detail that. No, I mean, it's a great question. It's something that I really think the department's also been struggling with, as well as all of our community groups. I mean, when you're looking at something, I mean, Housing Accountability Act is one thing. If the project is co-complying, then, you know, we can't be making any sort of reductions in density, square footage, that type of thing. So if it was going to be a change to respond to context, for instance, that's something that we would not be able to do under Housing Accountability Act. If it's fully co-complying, we have to rely on objective standards. And right now, San Francisco, our residential design guidelines, you know, as robust as they are, are not objective. So they are really relying on subjective determinations. And so there's been a lot of discussion about trying to develop objective design standards. If you're looking at something like state density bonus, that also becomes very tricky, especially when speaking like with the community, as well as our commissions, because in a way, like the, the zoning is, it provides guidance, but you can exceed your height limit. You can exceed your setbacks. You can exceed, you know, all of these different requirements that we've built our code on. And so it's definitely a very big shift that I think the department is trying to respond to as well as like our interactions with community groups and trying to explain to the public, you know, how these projects are coming in and, you know, what limited discretion the city really has. So in summary, uh, there may be some very sacred cows that won't be so sacred anymore, correct? Correct. Okay, uh, I'll yield to uh, Mr. Epler. Thank you. Thank you, uh, President Swig, and uh, thank you, uh, Kate, for that uh, presentation. There, there's a lot in there, and certainly the, the difficulty is even if we can wrap our heads around these general rules, it'll be the, you know, us understanding the application on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, with res respect to those general rules, I just wanted to ask a couple of questions. Um, in looking at the density bonus and the 
uh, SB 35, we have incentives and concessions in one bucket and then waivers in a second bucket. And it seems the difference, the only difference is that you have to show, you know, you get the one to four incentives and concessions depending on your affordability level. But for the waiver, you have to show that it increases the uh, financial feasibility, right, of the of the project. That's the the it's one the difference. It's the incentives and concession that have to, that deal with the finances. The waivers are more volumetric, and so it's just kind of space to accommodate the project. Okay, so that's right to accommodate the increased density, not not to not to create it in and of itself. Okay, so that's 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 a good clarification. Um, the second then clarification is when it comes to figuring out um, what standards we can apply um, and what counts as objective, and we can't enforce any sort of limitation that causes a project to become financially infeasible. And I guess that goes back to the incentives and concessions about financial feasibility and certainly heights easy to understand how that that plays in but there could be things that you know are are less clear and and particularly feasibility and infeasible those are two different lines right how does the department figure out what makes something infeasible on a particular project yeah so the findings of infeasibility we really look at when we're looking at housing accountability act um so if we are I'm just going to make up a hypothetical project. Like, let's just say that we wanted to maybe retain the front facade of a building that might potentially be historic and then require like the massing to be shifted. And this is a total departure from a straight demolition that a project sponsor may want to have. And that could be something where it ends up being so much more financially infeasible that it's still a co-compliant project. And under Housing Accountability Act, we have to be able to approve it. In terms of state density bonus, though, for the incentives and concessions, we do require that a project sponsor submit a rationale for what that cost savings is. And then we also, depending upon um, kind of the complexity and if it's, you know, if it's a very clear <laughs> um, cost savings, um, we can also um, ask for a third party to review it as well. And we've done that in a couple of different circumstances. You know, some incentives and concessions, for instance, um, open space in Eastern neighborhoods, if you don't provide enough open space, you have to pay a fee. Mm -hmm. And so that actually ends up being an incentive or concession because there's this cost savings. And so for that, it's much easier for us to do that calculation. We kind of understand what that's going to end up being. But we've had a few different projects where projects are wanting to, you know, provide more parking, you know, and the additional revenue from the parking is helping to offset the cost of providing affordable housing. And so for those types of scenarios, we usually have a third party verify kind of what those calculations are. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, on the AB uh, 2011, mm -hmm. um, which was all, all new information uh, for me, um, a couple of questions. One is if you have a project that is in a, a dense area, I, you know, the uh, 80 units per acre and um, has at least a 65 foot height limit, then it's really the only benefit of that program, the streamlining side and not additional like uh, building form uh, benefits? That's correct. Okay. Um, and then um, I noticed about the, you know, about what qualifies and what does not qualify. Um, when we talk about a project that contains or is adjacent to industrial use, how does that industrial use get defined? Because we have, 
varying degrees of industrial use districts here in the city? That's a great question. I may actually have to follow up with you on that once we figure out our implementation strategy. I mean, I know that we've been looking at the actual uses of the building, but this is where I think implementing state law becomes so tricky because, you know, in San Francisco, we have all these different industrial definitions and, you know, maybe the state considers those to be industrial and maybe they don't. And so I think that's something right now that we're really working on to kind of really clearly delineate what is considered to be industrial. Okay. All right. Well, um, I certainly look forward to to the update of uh, AB 2011. Maybe we'll be a little closer to having that part figured out. Thank you so much. Appreciate sure. it. Of course. Thank you. We will now hear from Commissioner Trisvina, who's joining us from the dark. He lost power, and now he's joining us by phone. Welcome. Thank you, uh, and uh, I appreciate the enlightening uh, presentation, but it's not enough to get me out of the dark here. So I will be brief. I, I believe it, it would be useful for us to have with uh, either from you or from the, or from Mr. Givner or, or both in collaboration, an assessment of what are the matters that would previously come before the board that will no longer be able to come before the board. And then second, for the matters that remain, are there any aspects of a case? Are there any considerations that we are no longer allowed to make uh, under the new law? Uh, and provide that uh, both to us, but also really the intended audience would be the public because the public needs to know uh, what, what, uh, how the new process works. Uh, and obviously not everybody is on the call tonight, so they don't get the benefit of your, of your, uh, uh, analysis and assessment. So if that's something that we could, could be provided in writing, I request to president Swig, uh, that something along those lines be, be, uh, be, uh, created. Thank you. Sure. And if I could just respond, um, quickly, there was, uh, I believe it was, AB 831 last year, the year before. Um, but basically what this bill did is that it wanted to ensure that projects that are subject to SB 35, any of their subsequent permits should also be handled ministerially. And so what we had kind of worked on in the planning department um, with uh, the Board of Appeals and uh, Department of Building Inspection is trying to develop legislation that would kind of memorialize like what that intent is. Like these are ministerial permits. So for SB 35, for instance, if you were going to appeal and you were appealing based on context or planning or whatnot, that's not grounds for an appeal for the ministerial project. Really, the grounds for appeal is, was SB 35 applied correctly? I mean, and this is, again, just in the planning realm. Um, so we were working on this legislation, I think, kind of with um, the two, you know, both, both Proposition D and Proposition E that were coming um, on board as possible ministerial programs. We kind of hit pause on it, and then we heard about AB 2011. But that is something that we're going to be taking up again um, next year to really try and kind of make sure that all of our procedures are really well documented within the code as it, you know, as it pertains to all of these ministerial projects as defined by the state. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Please raise your hand. Okay, I don't see any hands raised. So this concludes the matter. Ms. Connor, thank you so much for spending time with us this evening. Okay, thank you so much, everyone. Stay dry. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Okay, we're moving on to item number five. This is appeal number 22-083, Gina White versus Department of Building Inspection, Planning Department Approval, Subject Property, 272 Eureka Street, 
appealing the issuance on November 1st, 2022 to Matthew Montefo of a site permit addition at first and second floors, extend by approximately nine feet, seven and a half inches, adding 224 square feet to each level, relocate powder room, replace existing wood deck, new sliding door and window at rear, add new bathroom, laundry, office and skylight, renovate kitchen. This is permit number 2021-08-106180 and we will hear from the appellant first. I believe the appellant's attorney, uh, Mr. Brian O'Neill is, is here to represent the appellant. Hi, I was going to start first and then hand it over to okay. my Okay, welcome. Um, you have seven minutes. Thank you. Um, hello, Commissioners. My name is Gina White. I'm the owner of 278 Eureka Street, where I live with my small family next door to the property under discussion. Uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to my concerns. I was caught by surprise when I received a letter from the city saying a permit was granted for an addition to 272 Eureka Street. I learned about the plan as quickly as possible, and I developed concerns about the impact to the light and privacy of my home. When I saw the plans with windows so close to my existing upstairs bedroom windows, I was very concerned about privacy. I appreciate that Mr. Mantuffel has offered to remove the windows from his plan. However, I still have significant concerns about the light impacts. Mr. Mantuffel's sun map exhibit seems to ex indicate that my home receives direct light in the winter. I have two rooms in the back house, back of the house at the ground level. They never receive any direct light in the winter. Every bit of indirect light my windows receive is extremely important. This project will plunge my windows into darkness. I live in this house. I sleep here every night. I've been available to speak to, speak to Mr. Mantuffel at any point in the permit process. Mr. Mantuffel's father, Greg, wrote in his letter that he and I have had a cooperative relationship, and I agree. I would call it neighborly. That is why it was such a shock to learn that Mr. Mantuffel had planned for 16 months to construct a project that will affect me so drastically without ever mentioning it. It was a further shock to learn from Exhibit B of his appeal response that his pre-app notice was returned to him undelivered to me. He knew that I didn't receive the notice, if he did not, did not knock on my door or send a text or make a phone call or put a note in my mailbox, I was left completely unaware of the project and had no other choice but to file this appeal to protect the light that reaches my home. I think it is reasonable in this situation to stop and listen to my concerns and give them the same consideration they would have received if I'd known about the pre-application meeting and had been able to attend it. I'm not a very good public speaker, and I don't have experience in these types of hearings. So I'll ask my lawyer, Brian O'Neill, to speak on my behalf. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. As you heard, Ms. White's main concern is with the impact that this project will have on the, right, on the light that reaches her home. I would like to briefly address some of the points raised in the permit holder's response brief. First, the response suggests that Ms. White's windows receive direct light in the winter and Mr. Mantefels argues that his home receives direct light. But that ignores the differences between the two properties. You heard directly from Ms. White that her windows do not receive direct light. The situation at her home is simply different than next door. As you can see, the homes on the south side of Ms. White's home are much taller and Eureka Street slopes up to the south. There is also a steep slope running west. This is a photo of 20th Street and the tall buildings running up it. Ms. White's home is closer to the corner of Eureka and 20th, and these tall homes block any direct light from reaching her rear windows. 
That is why the indirect light that will be blocked by this project is so important. It's the last remaining light that reaches her rear windows and must be protected. The appeal response also seems to suggest that neighboring properties are only protected from shadows, but planning code section 101 clearly protects adequate light in all forms, both direct and indirect. The planning code seeks to ensure that properties have adequate light, period. Whether the project will cast shadows is irrelevant. The question is whether a project will ensure that neighbors receive adequate light. In this case, the answer is no. The red dashes in this photo taken from Ms. White's windows show that the project will significantly impact the light that reaches her home. Due to the unique orientation of her home, this project will plunge Ms. White's windows into darkness. What's not shown on the permit holder's plans are the houses on the south side that you saw in the earlier photos that directly block the light. The proposed expansion is built directly up to the lot line on the lower floor, completely boxing in Miss White's home and blocking the little bit of light she has left. The permit holder also argues that the project has been modified to lessen the impact to neighbors, but the changes so far have made the situation worse. The upper floor was originally designed as a nine and a half foot extension, just like the lower floor, but was subsequently extended even further to 13 and a half feet. The cantilevered upper floor blocks even more light than the original design. These impacts could be greatly reduced by providing a modest side setback and eliminating the cantilevered portion of the upper floor. This would still provide Mr. Mantefell with room for expansion while significantly improving the situation for Ms. White. The only supposed modification that has been offered is to remove a plum tree. First, removal of the tree has always been part of the project plans, as you can see here. It is not a concession made out of concern for Miss White and the light that reaches her home. But more importantly, as you can see from the photo, the tree does not have leaves and does not block any light. In short, removal of the tree will not reduce impact to the project. Finally, I'd like to address the statement that adequate notice was provided in this case. Exhibit B in the response brief shows that the pre-application notice was sent by certified mail and confirms that the notice never reached Miss White. In other words, Mr. Mantefell knew that Miss White never received it. The pre-application process is not just about doing the bare minimum and dropping something in the mail. The process is about actually notifying your neighbors and conducting meaningful outreach to resolve issues early in the process to avoid appeals like this. That early outreach unfortunately did not happen here. And Mr. Mantefell was clearly aware that Ms. White did not actually receive the notice when it was returned to him, but he failed to take any steps to reach out to her, even though she was right next door. Mr. Mantefell's response says that fostering neighborhood relationships is important, and I take him at his word. It does appear that he was willing to make modifications to address impacts to the northern neighbors. 30 seconds left. But those changes will not protect the last remaining light that reaches Miss White's home and actually made the situation worse. We therefore respectfully request that you grant the appeal and condition the project to provide a side setback and eliminate the cantilevered portion of the upper floor to protect the light that reaches Miss White's home. Thank you for your consideration. Okay, thank you. We will now hear, I don't see any questions at this time, so we will now hear from the permit holder, Mr. Mantefo. 
Hello, commissioners. Thank you for your time uh, this afternoon. I just want to introduce myself. My name is Matt Mantelful, uh, and I lived at 272 Eureka Street my entire life. Um, I was so excited to receive my site permit in November because I felt like I was getting so close to um, being able to renovate my childhood house and, and start my family there. Um, my wife and I are both very proud to be born and raised in the city, and we've seen a lot of our friends move out to other parts um, of the Bay Area. Um, we've had many conversations about raising our kids in the city, and it, it really is a sense of pride for us. Um, in terms of the house itself, uh, it is a very charming Victorian, and we actually don't know how old it is, um, really, because the records when it was built were burned in City Hall uh, in the fire after the 1906 earthquake. Um, we love our house, but it's definitely older, and our family hasn't done any work to it other than uh, a fairly light construction project in the early 90s. Um, and as we're getting ready to start our family, we knew we needed a bit more space, um, and specifically a bit more closet space and a, and a second bathroom um, with a tub and shower for, for our kids. We noticed that many of the houses on Eureka Street saw these, these shortcomings with rear additions. Um, as we came with our plans, we really wanted to be conscious of adding the least amount of space possible um, to be respectful of our neighbors and to minimize costs, um, which is why we didn't add any bathrooms and only what we really thought of as the essentials. Um, I believe the city allows you to develop up to 45% of the, the depth of your lot, and this is definitely not um, one of those kinds of projects. Um, when we started really rolling up our sleeves and, and getting started on the design, we leaned heavily on the city for guidance on, on what we should do and how we should do it uh, and who we should do it with. So we really meticulously paid uh, attention to what they told us to do. Um, and I've included a fairly detailed timeline in the written portion of my brief, but um, at a high level, uh, we conducted all the outreach that the planning department laid out for us. Um, Alec, I don't know if you have exhibit A. Yeah, pause time. Hold on. Okay, no worries. Um, but as you'll be able to see in exhibit A, um, that consists of first mailing out the pre-application notices to all the properties adjacent to ours, which is about 13 different um, addresses in, in the various neighborhood organizations in September uh, 2021. So we sent that by certified mail, and you can see that per USPS, notice was left at Ms. White's house on September 28th at 11, a, at 11 a.m. Um, and was available for delivery or pickup for 18 days. Um, I would also like to just point out that in response to Ms. White, um, the pre-application is still listed as in transit, and um, it never reached our architect who sent the packet. Um, and Jack, you're on. You can confirm that, right? Yes. Yeah, we um, we did not receive the letter uh, back back to my address. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, in addition, since our other neighbors appeared at our um, our pre-application meeting, we had a reason to believe the notice process had been adequate. So, so we had no reason to believe that further communication was was necessary. Um, and we actually had conversations with the neighbors on the other side of us after they received the pre-application packet. Uh, they were the only neighbors we heard from, and they gave us a few thoughts on things they want us to consider. And we took their comments to our planner um, and asked for suggestions on how to modify our plans to accommodate them. Um, exhibit B shows that our planning met with the city architect, and they told us to make changes to the second floor only, um, which included having a, fi a five-foot setback from both of our neighbors on any additional space and reducing the overall height by, by having a flat roof. Um, they also told us to consider transom or, or clerestory windows on the sides to maintain privacy. Um, so those are those windows that go above your head and allow for some light to transfer, but you, you can't see in or out. Um, exhibit C shows the revised plans and, excuse me, while it's redesigned, it's certainly not our first choice. Um, we're more than happy to, to work with our neighbors. 
we made those changes and the planning department conducted the neighborhood notification, um, which I believe is called the 311 notification, and we can move on to exhibit D. Um, they asked us to post an 11 by 17 notice on the side of our house for 30 days, starting on April 1st, um, 2022. Had to be on a specific part of the facade, not too high or too low. Um, and we've included a photo of that here and a declaration of posting in our, in our written brief as well. Um, at the same time, the planning department mailed the 311 notices to all the properties within 150 feet. And I just want to point out that Ms. White and the others, um, she also mentioned her appeal on that list. Um, and you can find that list in our, in our written brief as well. Um, at that point, the neighbors that we had met with previously said that they were, they were happy with the revised plans received in the 311, which was great. Um, we didn't hear from anybody else and the 311 period expired with no, no request for discretionary reviews um, filed. And then from there, we got approved by the building department, public works, uh, public utilities, the fire department. And then we finally got our permit on November 1st, 2022. Um, that's when we received Ms. White's appeal and then another from Meg Porter up the street. Um, and as you can see in exhibit E, uh, I spoke with Ms. Porter um, as she had privacy concerns related to the windows, but she didn't realize that those were clerestory windows, therefore going above your head. And she withdrew her appeal after we spoke. Um, Ms. White and I, met twice to hear each other out. Um, and in my opinion, I really do think we're good neighbors. There, there really is no doubt about that. Um, I conveyed to her that we had started by making the addition as modest as possible to begin with, um, and then worked with our neighbors and the city on revisions to come up with a design that was very intentional. So second floor setbacks, a flat roof, clerestory windows. Um, we're also offering to do more by taking out a large plum tree that straddles our two properties because um, it will let in a lot more uh, Western light. Um, exhibit F shows that tree and, and its size. Um, and this, this tree has leaves for, for 10 months out of the year. Um, as exhibit G shows for context, um, our yards face directly west and we are down the hill from Miss White and she's on our south side. Um, the sun map shows the sun rising setting pattern in relation to our houses. Um, and you will see that you know, a modest addition to our home north of Miss White's home should have no impact to the light of her home. The sun rises and sets to the south in the west of our homes. Um, our neighbors to our north side have a 30 plus foot addition into their yard. And I, I can honestly say it has never been an issue for us. Um, it doesn't cast shadow or have any impact um, on our light. Uh, okay, exhibit H. Um, but after our meeting, we really took Ms. White's concerns to heart and we wanted to be accommodating. So we meant a second time, we offered to remove the, the clerestory windows altogether. 30 seconds um, left. Which is a primary request in her appeal. Um, we would have much preferred to keep the windows as approved, but we also recognize that we're part of the community and want to be good neighbors. So to wrap things up throughout this process, we, we had productive talks with our neighbors at 254 Eureka, 264 Eureka, 268 Eureka, 270 Eureka, 278 Eureka, and 282 Eureka. And we summarized those talks in our written brief. And based on those conversations, we revised our plans once already. And we're now offering to do so a second time by removing our bedroom window that Ms. White's request. We followed all the state design guidelines and all the required procedures around the neighborhood. Okay, thank you. You'll have time in rebuttal. We do have questions from President Swig and mm -hmm. Commissioner Trisvina. President Swig? Um, thank you very much. Um, go today then. Uh, can you please mute yourself, Mr. Backus? Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Mantifold, am I pronouncing your name adequately? I hope. I'm sorry if I'm butchering it. It's a top. It's a tough one. It's man tough. Old. It's that's close enough. I will accept. Thanks very much. Um, it, it, uh, I, I I very much appreciate uh, that 
your responsibility of uh, going through all the uh, the processes of working with planning department, listening to their feedback, making adjustments. Uh, 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 again, working seemingly working hand in hand with them uh, to get to a finality with your with your plans. Uh, the uh, unfortunately, the fly in the ointment um, was that which uh, the appellant pointed out, which is all he had to do was ring the doorbell. Um, and what, was there any reason that, given that this was, and and this is going to be become the probably the crux of this discussion tonight, because um, there's a great sensitivity that we face on a weekly basis as commissioners with neighbor relationships, which we I always have to remind every neighbor that you guys are going to be living with each other. Um, for the rest of your lives or for a long time to come, hopefully in a in a sweet and constructive fashion. So work work hard at that. Um, not always heard. Uh, but it is it is it, was there did it ever cross your mind or did you ever uh, think to go next door and ring your door, uh, your your neighbor's doorbell and say, "Hey, I haven't heard from you, and I really wanted to make sure that you were comfortable uh, with this process." Yeah, no, I mean it's, it's a fair point. I, I think, like I said, this is my first time going through this too, um, and like I said, I, I really we we sort of just leaned on the city to tell us like how we should do things and when we should do it, and. Um, you know, we, I think we, we nailed the, the pre-application to 13 different parties. Um, and I, you know, I was under the assumption that that's sort of like the invitation to sort of discuss this and um, uh, be, just not hearing back. I sort of, I, I just assumed that it meant that everything was okay. Um, and, you know, I sort of took it from there, which might've been um, my mistake in hindsight, but that, that was sort of what I thought. And then given the fact that there's another notification pointed the 311 and then the, the notice on the building that there's other sort of um, catch-alls um, if something had been missed before. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not picking on you. I just wanted to let you know what what probably is the is going to be the 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 major issue here. Well, we're going. What I'm going to ask, uh, obviously, when we hear from planning and DBI. Uh, is that is there any deviation from anything that which isn't uh, code or isn't standard or or is this is this uh, project uh, any way out of compliance, uh, which are which is what we're here to really make sure about. But uh, it's it's just unfortunate. I want to let you know that you didn't go next door and ring the bell. And and again, I'm sympathetic because just about everybody who appears in front of us has gone through this in the first time, and there are no man, you know. There's no manual that they give you when you buy your house and you're thinking of doing renovation to help you through this process. So um, thanks yeah, for I, that, that. I'm sorry, if I could just add me just quick, and I also, like, I do recognize that, you know, it's not, we're all kind of right through this process that's not, you know, perfect and there's systems in place to do the best that we all can. And, and I am offering to, to like grant one of the main requests uh, the, the two main quests of repeal, you know, a, a sign of good faith. So I'll ju I just wanted to leave it at that. And I, and I, and I recognize that. And, and the, the, as, uh, the, and I, I didn't bring that up, that, that, that I appreciated as well too. And I'll pass it on to Mr. Trisvenia from here. Thank you very much. Th thank you, President Swig. And I appreciate the presentation. 
I just want to observe before I ask that question that the pathway between one house to another is a two-way street. And it's it strikes, I, I'm wondering, uh, perhaps I should have asked Ms. White this, um, how long before um, you're aware that uh, the appellant was aware of the development did uh, did she contact you or, or were you the contact initiator? We can't hear you. you are you on mute? Mr. Mantiple? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, didn't, I thought that was like, I'm sorry. I did not think that question was directed to me. So sorry, after the, um, how, how quickly did we reach out after we got the appeal? Uh, no, I'm wondering whether, um, well, let, let, let me just ask, ask it to the bottom line, which is uh, you didn't have the initial contact, the, 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 what you intended to do to comply with the law of sending out the notice and then having it being read and received by your neighbor. Um, but now you have uh, some indication of what her concerns are. Uh, wondering whether, as, as, as I understand your testimony, you have been able to communicate with and accommodate to some extent uh, your other neighbor's concerns. Uh, do you feel that there's additional time that you, you both could use as longtime neighbors and as your neighbor is a second generation, knowing both generations of your family has been testified, do you think you all could use more time um, to resolve the remaining differences? Um, I mean, I think we've met, we met twice. And like I said, I, I think um, I absolutely wanted to be accommodating and one of the you know, th there was two things. It was a light concern and privacy. And I said, um, especially I, I let her know on the second time that we met that I am absolutely willing to grant that second part of it. And, you know, in my mind, it's sort of like, that is sort of like the meeting in the middle of the, um, the two way street. So I, I don't know, um, at least on my end, I don't know how much more accommodating we can be, um, other than, or, or how much time can sort of help with that. Um, having given up, you know, one already given one half of which is being asked in the appeal. But, you know, we want to talk. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I don't see any more questions at this time. So we will hear from the planning department. Thank you. Good evening, President Swig, Vice President Lopez, and members of the board. I'm Tina Tam, Deputy Zoning Administrator. 272 Eureka Street is a two-story single-family dwelling in the RH2 Zoning District and a 40-feet height in Bulk District. Constructed in 1905, it is a potential historic resource. The project is to construct a new two-story rear horizontal extension. I'd like to clarify that the extension is two stories tall and not three, as described in the appeal brief. The addition will extend about nine and a half feet on the ground floor and 13 feet on the second floor as measured from the existing rear building wall. The two-story portion of the addition will be set back five feet from the side property lines. The appellant is Gina White. Gina is the immediate neighbor to the south at 278 Eureka. And Gina's concerns are there was no neighborhood notification for the project, and the new addition will have light and privacy impacts. Because the project is proposing an, a, an addition of 10 feet or more, a pre-application meeting is required. 
A pre-application meeting serves as the first step in the permit process and is intended as a way for the applicant to discuss the project and review the proposed plans with the neighbors before the planning department re reviews the project. According to the affidavit of conducting a pre-application meeting signed by the project architect, Jack Backus, notices were sent via U UP, um, USPS to the adjacent neighbors and the neighborhood associations on September 28, 2021. The pre-application meeting for the project was held via Zoom on October the 8th, 2021 at 5.30 p.m. Per the sign-in sheet, there were at least three neighbors who attended the pre-application meeting. While Gina White was included in the mailing list, she claims she did not receive any notice and thus did not attend the pre-application meeting. Because the project is proposing to increase the size of the existing building, neighborhood notification pursuant to section 311 of the planning code is also required. According to our records, Repo Mail, who's the department's vendor for processing all of our mails, received the job order for 272 Eureka Street on March 23rd, 2022, and confirmed via email that the 311 notices were mailed out on April the 1st. All owners and occupants within a 150-foot radius of the subject property were sent a 311 notice along with a 11 by 17 size copy of the reduced plants. In addition to the 311 notices, a 11 by 17 poster was also taped to the front of the property informing neighbors about the project. While Gina White is the immediate neighbor and was included in the mailing list, Gina claims that she never saw the poster nor received the 311 notice and so did not file a DR, a discretionary review request to oppose the project. Seeing no DR was filed during the 30 day review period, the planning department signed up on the permit and the permit was subsequently issued by DBI on November the 1st, 2022. As noted by the applicant, the current design configuration was a recommendation from the department's staff architect. While the original design was submitted, um, that was submitted with the permit met the provisions of the planning code, most of the new massing was located towards the south side of the property, which is closest to the appellant's property. To minimize any potential light impacts to the south side neighbor, the department asked the project architect to revise his design and locate the two-story massing to the center or the middle of the property. With a five-foot size setback from both the north and south property lines, the department believes the project is more compatible with the development pattern than the original design. In addition to changing the location of the two-story massing, the applicant also incorporated clear story windows to reduce any potential privacy concerns. In conclusion, the department believes that the notification processes associated with this project were adequately conducted. This includes both the pre-application meeting and section 311. The project meets the planning code and complies with the residential design guidelines. While the department acknowledges that the, the project, like with most projects in the city, will result in a change to the property, we believe the project is modest in size and sensitive in design. With the five-foot size setback, the project is compatible with the surrounding context and reduces the potential of any conflicts and impacts on light and privacy. The department recommends that the board deny the appeal and uphold the issuance of the permit on the basis that the permit was properly issued. This concludes my presentation. I'm happy to answer any questions. 
Thank you. We have a question from President Swick. So uh, from, from your view, there are no, uh, or from your view, are there any non-compliant or worrisome issues that exist uh, in this plan? And that would be a uh, deviation from anything that is um, uh, that, that you normally approve. Yes, thanks for the question. No, I don't see any. Um, and typically we don't um, initiate the 311 notice process unless the project complies with the code and meets the design guidelines. And with this appeal that we have before us, we had a second look at the project and we still believe that is still the case. So you have no you have no reason to believe that there are any issues with regard to the issuance of this permit. That is correct. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. We will now hear from the Department of Building Inspection. Um, uh, good, good morning, President Swig, and Vice President Lopez and Commissioners. Um, I'm Matthew Green. I'll be representing the Department of Building Inspection tonight. Um, after planning approval of the permit application before it was routed to DBI on June 6, 2022, after review by DBI and the other, other relevant city agencies, including Fire Department, Department of Public Works, the PUC, the permit was approved and issued on November 1, 2022. Um, DBI believes the project was reviewed and approved properly by the relevant agencies and is code compliant. Uh, we recommend that this permit be upheld. If the permit holder wishes to remove the clear story windows, as mentioned, we would support that decision. Um, as a reminder, this is a site permit that will be further plan review for the construction agenda, including the um, structural and uh, energy compliance matters. Um, I'm available for any questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you. President Swig has a question. Same question. Are there, uh, is this, did you find that there are any, there are any aspects of this uh, project that are not code compliant and uh, that we should be worried about, or is this a, a, a clean issuance from your view? Uh, no, we believe it is code compliant and should be upheld. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Is there any public comment on this item? Please raise your hand. I don't see any public comments, so we will move on to rebuttal. So Ms. White or Mr. O'Neill, you have three minutes. Thank you. Just quickly, a few points. Um, so this project does have impact to Ms. White's light. The sun map uh, that was shown with the sun coming from the west doesn't take into account the tall buildings that you saw in the photos that block the direct light. And so this project is going to block in Miss White's uh, home and block the last remaining indirect light. Um, but really, Mr. Mantuffle's uh, presentation really reaffirms the importance of the pre-application process. Mr. Mantuffle seems very flexible in his design. This isn't about adding bedrooms. This is mostly about adding closet space and, and, and a second bedroom. And there's a lot of flexibility there. And he has shown a lot of flexibility when those Northern neighbors who did receive the pre-application notice showed up to the meeting. Those concerns were taken into account by the planning department and there were significant changes to address the concerns of the Northern neighbors. 
And unfortunately, Ms. White was not able, was not able to participate in that pre-application notice because of the evidence that was shown by Mr. Mantuffle himself. She did not receive that pre-application notice. Um, and to answer the question, uh, Ms. White did reach out, did try to, as soon as she found out about uh, when she received the uh, notice of issuance, she did reach out via text to Mr. Mantuffle and uh, his father, Greg, who also uh, Ms. White has a relationship with uh, due to the short time frame. And I think she may have had a uh, wrong number for Mr. Mantuffle, um, but due to the short time frame for filing an appeal, did not get a chance to actually sit down and talk with Mr. Mantuffle until after the uh, the appeal was filed, but she did try to reach out to resolve this issue, this issue prior to filing. Um, so, um, you know, this this project will have impacts to uh, Miss White's rear windows, and think that uh, additional time to work out that issue and see if there's a way forward to, uh, you know, move some stuff around, provide a little bit more of a side setback. Um, seems like a reasonable solution in this case. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Did we have any questions? President Swig, your hand was raised. Okay, thank you. We will now hear from Mr. Mantuffle. Sorry, I pronounced your name wrong. Mantuffle. No, everyone's doing great. That is, that's fine. <laughs> um, no, I appreciate that. Um, I just wanted to sort of summarize by like kind of giving the totality of explaining that we really had talked to a ton of our neighbors. Um, in total, we had, you know, productive talks with neighbors at the end of the day at 254 Eureka, 264 Eureka, 268 Eureka, 270 Eureka, 278 Eureka, and 282 Eureka. Um, and, you know, based on those conversations, we have revised our plans once. Um, and as um, Mr. O'Neill pointed out, I, I do really want to be flexible and I, I just, I want to reiterate that, you know, we're offering to be flexible and in, in granting, you know, uh, the main point of, uh, or one of the main two points of, of Ms. White's appeal, which is removing the bedroom windows. Um, you know, that's something we offered before this, this hearing and we're here to offer it again. So, um, you know, just in summary, I, we did everything we could. We followed the city's design guidance. Um, we followed all the required procedures around um, neighborhood notification as we were instructed, which included mailing out the, the pre-applications in September of 2021 and the 311 process in April of 2022. Um, we also carried ongoing conversations with our neighbors outside of that as well. Um, and we've gotten all of our, our uh, approvals from all the required city departments and uh, I respectfully ask the board to um, uphold our permit as is and um, lift the suspension. And thanks again for your time, I really appreciate it. Okay, your architect would like to speak as well in the remaining time, Mr. Backus, go ahead, please. You're on mute. Can we pause the time, please, Alec? I did pause the time. You have a minute, 36 seconds. Okay. okay. Uh, I just wanted to just point out one interesting, uh, one thing was uh, the adjacent home to um, 278 Eureka are actually further back. And so the homes, even though, um, what is it? They're upslope from them, um, doesn't really impact um, the house at, 278 Eureka, um, because they're, they don't go back as, as far as, um, both Matt's house and Miss White's house. Um, and so I just wanted to, to point that in terms of, uh, light affecting it. Um, I think that, um, it's, it's a, 
it's a reasonable case. The other thing was, I think the staff architect, when they did the setback for both the uh, the house to the to the north and the house to the south took into consideration when when they did a symmetrical uh, setback uh, impacts on on both properties. Um, if if you looked at our site plan, the the house to the north of us, um, which has an addition that goes back 30 feet, I mean they're being impacted a lot more in terms of light view, those type of things. Than, 30 seconds um, remaining. Than the than the adjacent home to the south. Okay, thank you. We do have a question from President Swick. Thank you. Um, I, I got a little confused in the, the chronology, Mr. Mantuple. Um, the, where, where did the, so, you, um, so any conversations that you've had with your neighbor have occurred since the appeal was filed, correct? Yes, exactly. That, that was the first, um, to my knowledge, that there had been um, any sort of concern. So yes, that's correct. And specifically, what were the requests made from your neighbor to you uh, related to changes that uh, that she wanted that led to the, uh, the, for example, the window, your offer to remove the, the bedroom window. Can you detail those, please? Yeah, no problem. It was um, the, it was really what was written in the initial appeals, not, not the full write-up, but the initial um, was privacy concerns and then light concerns, privacy concerns related to the windows and light concerns um, uh, to, the, to the size, basically. So reducing the size. Um, and um, that's when we met a second time. And that's when I, I said, let's, let's compromise this being in the middle and um, take the windows out to eliminate the privacy concerns. Are, are there, uh, and other than that, it was really the, the, the massing or the bulk of and, and size of the project, which she, uh, which she didn't like. Um, and were there any That's other, correct. yes, were there any other, other than the windows, which, uh, uh, which currently that adjustment in your plans has not been made, um, but it, uh, were there any other specific items uh, that uh, would, uh, would help um, soften the the blow of your uh, your, your project. Um, no, other than removing uh, like the that large plum tree, um, which kind of situates a little further west, um, to help with the light as well. Yeah. All right. So, uh, but physically, as from a building standpoint, the the window the the window is is. Uh, was a concession that was discussed, a concession that you offered, but there were other than the general massing of the building, uh, which is a, a grander discussion, but seems to be in compliance from a, uh, from a planning department standpoint. Um, there, there's there's nothing else. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, thanks very much. Okay. Thank you. We will now hear from the planning department. You have three minutes, Miss Tam. Thank you. I really don't have any rebuttal remarks other than just to kind of clarify the question that um, President Swig asked. Um, there were three things that were listed in the appeal brief um, as things that um, the appellant would like to see granted. Eliminate the south-facing windows and skylight, which I believe the, uh, the applicant is willing to do. Two, set the addition back from the shared property line by six feet. 
I mentioned earlier that the two-story portion of the of the of the addition is set back five feet. Um, and then three, reduce the total extension length to no more than nine feet to the rear of all levels. As, as you heard, the, the ground floor is extended uh, or proposed to be extended nine and a half feet, and then the second floor, 13 feet or so. Um, the fine department um, believes um, this project is very modest in size and it's sensitive in design. It's well within the development um, um, buildable area of the lot and is consistent with the uh, design guidelines. And we recommend that you uphold the issuance of the permit. Okay, thank you. President Swick? Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to be redundant. Uh, so the the nine foot extension, the setbacks, uh, those are those are compliant, and those are what you would expect a uh, a project to include if um, because that's why a person would be doing a project in the first place, correct? Yes, that's co correct. And based upon the site plan, there's actually more space that you can actually um, extend to that would be still well within the buildable area of the lot. I'm not maxing out, in other words. Thank you very, very, very much for bringing that up. That is something I wanted to surface, and it's something I really wanted to bring up to the appellant. Um, that And the question that I would have raised to the appellant, and I'm sorry that I forgot, um, but I can raise the question, and you've already answered it, which is, do you recognize that in fact this project could have been a lot larger and um and still would have been code compliant and still would have fit into the design guidelines and the guidelines of the planning department and uh so i'm sorry i didn't answer that question but it's a very 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 important point in in this case um thank you very much i'm done Thank you. We will now hear from the Department of Building Inspection. Anything further? Uh, nothing further to that. Thank you. Thank you. So, commissioners, this matter submitted. Uh, commissioners, any comments? Uh, be hearing the seeing no hands raise up. Uh, my, my thoughts are that um, that it's very, very unfortunate that there was a communication issue um, and the USPS didn't perform or the uh, or if it did perform that the the the, the recognition of a uh, uh, we tried to get to you, but you we couldn't find you uh, didn't respond in a response from the appellant. Um, and uh, but uh, given the given the evidence that there was a, a community meeting, given the evidence that there was other dialogue and uh, some flexibility on the uh, the project sponsors' part to make some changes related to other neighbors' comments, uh, clearly there there was uh, an an effort made. It's just unfortunate, as Murphy's Law would be, that the next door neighbor wasn't included. Um, uh, uh, I, I would, if the, um, if Mr. Mantiful is still up to it, I would suggest that, uh, to mitigate some of the concerns that, uh, we, while, while, uh, denying the, the substance of the appeal in, include the, the removal of the window, uh, in, uh, in the final set of plans, 
uh, hopefully that will be some solace to the uh, to the neighbor. Would anybody like to uh, make a, a motion on this or shall I give it a shot? I just want to say that if that's the route you're going, you're going to have to grant the appeal and issue the permit on the condition it be revised to require. Um, I would reference the revision set forth in Exhibit L of the permit holder's brief, uh, namely the removal of the south-facing bedroom windows. That, that, that's exactly what I would say because you already... Okay. That's the way to say it. Does okay, it? and you're making this on the basis that it would address some of the privacy concerns of the appellant? Yes, but but more, more importantly, that but even without that, that the permit was properly issued. Okay. 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 And, so is that is that your motion, or is there further discussion? Or I I I, I want to hear if any of the commissioners have any further comment. If not, we can move forward. That's the motion. Commissioners, anybody? Seeing nobody. Um, I, okay. I'll, go ahead. I'll just very briefly add uh, because I am on the recipient list of 311 notifications for the Castro neighborhood. Uh, that I did in fact receive uh, this particular notice back in 2021, both for the uh, pre-application meeting and the 311 notice. Um, so I, I can personally vouch that uh, that did in fact occur, at least as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, and that being said, I would be uh, in support of President Swig's motion as it sounds like it's about to come out at least. Anybody else? All right, then let's move forward with a vote, please. Okay, so thank you. On President Swig's motion, Vice President Lopez? Aye. Commissioner Trisvinga? Aye. Commissioner Lemberg? Aye. Commissioner Epler? Aye. So that motion carries five to zero, and I will reach out to the permit holder tomorrow. We still have a window of time in which a rehearing request could be made, but I will reach out to you tomorrow about the process moving forward since the plans uh, will be revised. Okay, thank you. So this concludes this matter. And we are now moving on to item number six. This is appeal number 22-081. Jonas Pilkowskis, sorry if I said that wrong, versus San Francisco Public Works, Bureau of Urban Forestry, subject property, 3312 Clay Street, appealing the issuance on November 4th, 2022 to Jonas Pilkowskis of a public works order. Denial of an application to remove a street tree without replacement. The tree is in good condition with minor structural concerns and a wound. This is order number 207275, and we will hear from the appellant first. And um, I believe he's represented by Mr. Zucker, but we, okay, please go ahead. I'm sorry. Welcome. Yeah. Good evening. My name is Jonas Pilkowskis and I'm the owner of the house at 3312 Clay Street. I appreciate everyone's time to consider our tree removal, removal matter, which is very important to us. I've lived on this block with my wife and our three children for over eight years now in an apartment next door. And then about two years ago, we have moved into the house at 3312 Clay Street. After we have assessed the building, which is over 100 years old, it was concluded that it requires extensive foundation strengthening work. And once we started working with our architect and structural engineer, given the extent of the excavation and foundation work, we've also decided that adding the garage is feasible. We would, of course, very much appreciate having a garage where we could park our car, store bicycles, other things, and charge my electric scooter. 
And because of historic preservation considerations, the only access for the construction machinery is through the opening in the brick wall with the Western tree being in front of it. And we absolutely want a tree to remain in front of our house and we'll follow every recommendation laid out in the tree protection plan for the Eastern tree. If the Eastern tree were not to survive, our architect has informed us that the tree well can be relocated west where there's no utility conflicts. And our neighbors on both sides of the house are supportive of our request. And I'd like to ask you to approve the tree removal, thereby allowing our house renovation to proceed. I'd like to pass the word to our legal advisor, Justin Zucker. Good evening, board members. Justin Zucker from Ruben Junius and Rose on behalf of the appellants. I hope everyone is staying safe and dry. The Department of Public Works tree removal permit denial should be overturned for four reasons. First, the removal is necessary to replace the foundation for this over 100-year-old structure, which needs repair. Second, the curb cut and driveway access for the garage addition necessitates removal of the tree. Third, the project complies with the Urban Forestry Ordinance, in particular Section 806D, for the addition of a new curb cut and garage. Finally, one of the two existing street trees, the eastern tree, will be preserved and is not anticipated to be adversely impacted by the project. And while the city has raised concerns about such, mitigation measures are available to ensure a street tree is in front of the property, unlike many other properties on the block. The foundation for this historic structure, some of which is originally built in 1910, is compromised, likely from differential settlement over the years. It is proposed to be replaced so this structure can safely remain for another 100 years. To replace the foundation, excavation of the entire building footprint is required. As mentioned, considering the work needed to replace the foundation, a garage addition is also proposed. Earth moving equipment will gain access to excavate by creating an opening in the clicker brick facade where the garage door is proposed over here and going down and under from there. If you have any questions regarding the excavation means and methods, the project architect is available. It is not possible to obtain the needed excavation access elsewhere due to the historic elements of the structure, including the stairway, as well as utility conflicts to the east. Only two other properties on this block of Clay Street do not have driveways. The addition of garages with driveways on this block has occurred several times over the years. In those instances, variances were obtained. Here, the project is code compliant. No variances are necessary, neither from the planning code nor the public works code. The project is compliant with the urban forestry ordinance and denial of the tree removal permit is an abuse of discretion. Section 806D of the urban forestry ordinance imposes street tree requirements for projects to add new curb cut and or a garage. One street tree is required for every 20 feet of street frontage with rounding up of any fraction one half or larger. Existing street trees to remain must count toward meeting the street tree requirement. With the property 27 and a half feet wide, only one street tree is required in front of the property. One of the two street trees in front of the property will remain. A robust tree protection plan has been crafted by a certified arborist Though the eastern tree is anticipated to survive construction activities, the appellant appreciates there are utility conflicts adjacent to the existing eastern tree well that would restrict replanting a new tree there if the existing one were to fail. After careful analysis, it has been determined that the eastern tree well can be relocated closer to the driveway away from any utility conflicts. 
Appellant is willing to have a condition of approval added requiring the Eastern tree well be relocated as set forth in exhibit B to the brief and support shown on screen and replanting a new street tree if that Eastern tree fails within nine months of issuance of the project certificate of final completion. We appreciate the project results in the loss of a mature, albeit challenged street tree. As noted in the brief, appellants are willing to replant two new street trees in the nearest empty wells. That said, responding to the department's brief, appellants are willing to pay the associated appraised fee by buck, unless this board exercises its discretion to reduce or waive it. As to the tree's value, I now turn it over to the project arborist, Tony Wolcott, to address the valuation of the tree. Thank you. Um, tree appraisal starts with research. Four nurseries gave the cost of a 24-inch box pittosporum. From their information, I arrived at a basic cost $13,059 for the tree and the two photos. What is a perfect pittosporum undulatum? I have seen many examples, including one cheesewood outside my window. Uh, take a look at this tree to the right there. Um, there is a lean to the east and a candelabra branch arrangement, which came from the nursery. The open trunk damage in the right photo is typical of pittosporums and carries on above. Tree appraisal depreciation has three factors. Tree condition analyzes health, structure, and form. That's one factor. The health is poor, disease problems, decay, and included bark. The structure is poor with the lean, branch attachments, hollow wood, and heart rot. Um, the second factor, functional limit. 30 seconds left. The second factor looks at the location and function. Our challenges here, soil volume, and concrete, but constant wind and sun exposure are the greatest difficulties. External limitations, laws and regulation, the homeowner has no control. The city takes care of the tree and most homeowners appreciate the help. There was a lot I just said to digest and I am available for any questions. Okay, thank you. We have a question from Commissioner Trisvenia and then Commissioner Lemberg. Th thank you. Thank you for the presentation. I, I think I want to direct my questions to um, council. Um, does the creation of the garage space enable your client to park on the premises instead of on the street? Yes, the garage addition in, uh, will allow for two off street parking for the code. Um, if folks get creative, Cars get smaller, I think things could be a little bit tighter, but as planned, two cars would be able to fit in those, two standard cars. Okay, and, and, and in general, does having cars off the street uh, create a safer environment for bicyclists? I, I would think so, yes, it does. Uh, I, I will admit that I have unintentionally doored someone while exiting my car. I thought I had looked and unfortunately, someone was speeding faster than I thought and that occurred. And those are real urban problems that no one likes to encounter. And another urban problem is if, uh, if the homeowner is forced to park on the street, not necessarily in front of his or her own house, but down the block, that also is a potential public safety risk of having to, your, for your car, as well as for your person in San Francisco. Would you agree? had my car broken into uh, on more than one occasion when I lived in San Francisco. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Lindbergh. Uh, my question is actually for Mr. Wolcott. Um, 
I your last your very last slide was about uh, the valuations, and it was a side by side comparison of the valuations, uh, both by yourself and by Buff. Um, and I'm going to ask Mr. Buck the same question, uh, but why do you, uh, in in your opinion, Mr. Wolcott, why are the valuations so pretty drastically different uh, between your analysis and Buff's analysis for the same tree? Yeah, I understand that. And uh, in a minute, I wouldn't be able to explain too much, but uh, there are several, there are several reasons for the differences in the, in the, um, evaluation. You know, one starts with the fact that the DBH is slightly different. The fact that my DBH is a little lower adds a lower price to it. The cost of a readily available 24-inch box is not $100. It's less than that. It's $82. It's times 82 and stuff. Well, at any rate, that's one of it. And then if we look at the three factors for depreciation, um, the tree itself is only one-third of that part. So the tree condition that we look at, we looked at structure um, and also health and form. That, um, oops, sorry. The, uh, so that that also is one of the, um, that's the one factor. The second factor, functional limitations, is actually an important one because the location itself on the street with the concrete around in the basin, but also the fact the, uh, that you're looking at a street that's got a wind tunnel coming from the west and that tree is leaning because of that wind. And um, so the location is not very good for that particular tree. There are other trees that would, would do quite a bit better. Uh, this one is suffering quite a bit because of the location. Most pittosporum undulatums like to be protected in, the, in shade, they're a shade tree. They like to be amongst other trees. They don't like to be out in the open with the wind and the sun. And the third section is, is for, um, external limitations. And that one I didn't rate very, I, I, I did rate kind of high. There wasn't much depreciation in that, simply because the trees are the responsibility of the city. And most homeowners kind of appreciate the fact that they do that. Um, so I didn't, I, I didn't allow, I only allowed that 10% uh, as far as depreciation on the last one. But you put those things together, you, you multiply the three, um, depreciation factors and then multiply that times the basic cost and you come up with what I came up with, which, you know, is, is a, a, a far different number from Buff came up. But in my opinion that there's just, it's not just a single answer is kind of what I'm saying. There's several things that make my, my estimate lower. Um, and I have a lot of experience with trees, but also a lot of experience with this particular type of tree and, and the problems that it has. And they're all showing up on both of these street trees. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We will now hear from the Bureau of Urban Forestry. Welcome, Mr. Buck. You have seven minutes. Uh, thank you. Good evening, commissioners. I just want to confirm that you can hear my audio. Mm -hmm. Yes, we can hear you. Great. I um, Great to be here. I came in out of the storms and we'll be heading back out to uh, help determine if trees are private property responsibility or maintained by public work. So it's going to be a wild 48 hours. So I hope everyone stays safe. And thank you for allowing this to be remote because I think it really does um, help us all just try to maintain safety. So I really appreciate that decision by the commissioners. 
Um, so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. That might just take a moment here. Let's bring this up. Share presentation from the beginning. Okay, thank you. Um, so again, Chris Buck with Public Works. I'm the urban forester for the Bureau of Urban Forestry. And we received the application for the removal of one street tree without replacement. Um, I won't go over a lot of ground that's been covered already. Um, here's a view of the property with a brick. Um, and to their credit, they're starting with two existing trees, which already means we're, you know, we're feeling favorably for the applicant. You know, they voluntarily planted these trees years ago and uh, have been maintaining them in a, in a well-maintained manner and Public Works assumed responsibility for the trees in 2017. So the subject tree is the tree on the left or the tree to the west. And there are a few issues with the tree and we noted that in our appraisal, um, but it's a really hardy urban street tree that perform really, really well, just other than the pittosporum decline, which we'll probably talk about a lot more this evening. So it's a broadleaf evergreen tree. It has good vigor. Um, the structural issues noted by the applicant and the applicant's arborist, we, we agree and acknowledge that it doesn't have perfect form. But again, the way that this species performs, that those structural concerns are really not um, impacting the overall health of the tree, not the way that a ficus tree would be impacted by poor structure. Um, and so our overall assessment of the tree, the subject tree, is that it's in good condition. The lean is very, very minor. Um, it's corrected. It's, it's grown its entire life used to that wind and the lean. And then because the tree cannot be replaced, we consider removal without replacement. And just in my brief, I spent a little bit more time providing background about this kind of dog and cat, um, for lack of a better expression, conflict between existing street trees and proposed driveways and curb cuts. And the fact that as a matter of public record, yes, ultimately so many of these end up getting approved. That said, over the years, we fought hard to increase this sort of the value and benefit of, of these trees when they are approved and our decision to deny is overturned so that we're getting something for the loss of that valuable landscape. And it's taken us a long time to, to get to this point. The fees have steadily grown to try to keep pace with impacts from construction and development. So we're not looking at this site simply through a, a single property application, but also collectively, what is the impact if everyone today went out and did some work that quote unquote necessitated removal of a street tree? Um, the tree that will remain is the tree on the right. Based on utilities, it's in a bit of a problematic spot, probably planted without the benefit of a permit because it's much too close to a sewer line. Not an issue to remove, not a, a reason to remove it, um, but about the same overall condition, about the same diameter, uh, 15 inches. Again, same species, Pittosporum undulatum, broadleaf evergreen tree, um, very few structural issues with this tree, broadleaf evergreen. 
Now, the one thing I do want to talk about, and then this is just showing some of these utility conflicts. Um, there's a pack bell or communications, there's a sewer and there's gas line. So we're very limited. And the reason we wanted to talk about, hey, if we approve, if one tree gets approved, what happens to the tree that remains? We just wanted everyone to have eyes wide open about potential impacts from re reducing the grade by the creation of the driveway curb cut, but also the fact that the species has been suffering something referred to as pitosporum or protosporum decline. It's not a well understood um, sort of pathogen or disease, but it's thought to be uh, caused by drought impacts and possibly a canker. Um, these are some more images of the, the broadleaf evergreen uh, tree. Again, not the perfect structure, but again, as a species, it tolerates not having an ideal structure. It doesn't have a lot of branch failures the way that ficus trees would. So very few serious or even moderate defects in, in either tree. And so one of the things I wanted to point out, what does pitosporum decline look like? You, this is an example of a tree across the street. The, the top of the canopy is clearly dying back, as you can see here. The tree in the left, by comparison, has zero dieback. And so our, our subject trees don't have dieback. They're not showing that, that sign of decline yet. There's a little bit of thinning, but it's not severe or even moderate. Here's another example down the street. Same block. A tree is healthy. This is how it should look on the right. This is a tree showing pitosporum decline on the left. And so I did want to be honest about that because, um, you know, we don't want to draw a line in the sand and say this tree is perfect. And if we save one tree, this is going to be great. It's very possible that the tree to the right could be impacted by construction and or also pitosporum decline. And so while there's two relatively healthy trees now, in five years, there can be uh, zero trees. So that's, that's our concern with this particular application. And then we'll probably talk about the appraisal process. Um, it's quite a process. You have to receive training to conduct it. Uh, Public Works Bureau of Urban Forestry uh, performs appraisals on a regular basis, probably has been for at least 20 years. And our staff are all trained in how to uh, provide those uh, appraisals. I did just look a few hours ago at the kind of counter appraisal to try to understand why the two appraisals were so far apart. Look, in an ideal world, we'd be off. Left. In ideal world, we'd be off by by a thousand dollars, and we could split the difference. We did um, reduce the overall structure of the tree. We did ding it for that. And we did also reduce some of the ratings for other reasons. Um, but I really feel like this is where the conversation will probably be focused is, is where are we on these appraisal? But to recap, our decision at the staff level and public works was to deny the request to remove the tree. That's but fine. If, thank you. if approved, thank you. Thank you. You'll, you'll have time in rebuttal, but we do have questions from Commissioner sure. Lemberg, Commissioner Trisvenia, and President Swig. Thank Commissioner you. Lemberg. Thank you. Um, so first, I just I want to ask the same question I asked uh, the the appellant arborist, which is uh, I, you were getting there, but uh, if you could just finish kind of your explanation as to the difference in the um, uh, in the valuations. Sure. So 
In an ideal world, we try to be as reasonable as possible. Our goal really is to have an, another arborist for an applicant do an appraisal and they come in and they go, actually ours was greater. You know, that was pretty reasonable. So our general approach is to avoid situations where we are in this position. And I would say that um, there are a couple of things. One is I do want to acknowledge that part of this landscape appraisal is to acknowledge that large mature established trees have value far greater than the young replacement trees. And so it's gonna take 20 years to, to achieve a tree of, of this size. And so there's really a value in that landscape. And even um, small discrepancies or difference in opinion, we may have five highly qualified arborists, all reasonable approaches, and we may all be off from each other's um, appraisals. The industry tries to avoid that, um, but we did reduce the structure of the tree. We did acknowledge there's, it's not ideal structure. Instead of 100%, we knocked it down to 65%. Um, the, you know, I'm looking at the overall condition rating was a 78, even though I'm saying, hey, this tree is in good condition. We're not saying it's perfect. We're, we're bringing it all the way down to 78%. Um, I think the, where the, you know, the arborist for the applicant um, reduced the, the tree, you know, the kind of reasoning was it's, it's a street tree and a sidewalk. It's surrounded by concrete. To us, that's our business. You know, all of our trees are, are out there surrounded by, con by concrete. To that end, I think the one thing I do want to introduce as a bit of a, a factor where I think our staff could have reduced our valuation is this pittosporum decline. <laughs> you know, the, the sort of using that as external or functional impacts. I, I do, we were very upfront in our brief that in five years, this tree could be declining on its own, regardless of impacts from the construction. And I really was very clear in our brief about that. Um, and so I think it, where the, the project's arborist has reduced the value due to function with its location for being a street tree surrounded in concrete, um, to us, we're, we're one of the highest real estate values in the world. And then the neighborhood in particular is one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in one of the wealthiest cities in the world. There is a uh, impact to that. Something that is valuable to this property is going to be very valuable. And so it may seem like rather a lot of money, but again, it, it took many years. So it, it, would be a, it could be a very lengthy conversation, but I did want to point out there that there is a, a little bit of a wild card. We acknowledge that we can't guarantee that the tree that remains is going to remain and be vigorous forever because of pittosporum decline. Thank you. Um, I have a separate question, which is that um, when reading the materials submitted by, by the parties in this, uh, what stuck out to me the most was that this was an application for uh, removal without replacement. And so what I wanted to ask you is that, uh, A, if they had applied for removal with replacement, would it have been granted? And B, if they, uh, um, 
I forgot the second half of my question. If you can answer the first half first, and then I'll remember the second half. Um, Oh, did, did you pass that question over to me? Yes. Okay, sorry. Um, so real quick, so removal without replacement. So regardless of how someone approaches it, whether it's removal with replacement or without, it, what we really wanna focus on is what the direct public right of way allows. So there's another site, UCSF Parnassus, where there's an effort by by that entity to look at planting a number of additional trees throughout the neighborhood. In this particular case, what we're saying is we're losing this this planting site due to their their needs or their actions. We're we're losing this site permanently, and so we're really when it comes to private development, we really try to stick to what's occurring on this on this frontage and the appraised value in this particular case is is far greater than a basic replacement tree you know a couple of replacement trees so the offer of replacing with two trees um we're, we're not getting a value those other trees that get planted are going to get planted there anyway because of our urban forest plan so it's it's less of a benefit to us in this case than it would be to just acknowledge the permanent loss of a site and, and appraise the loss in value caused by that action Thank you. And that did remind me of the second half of my question, which was that um, similar to what we talked about in our last meeting with the UCSF project, um, what in your estimation would be the actual replacement uh, equivalency of, uh, of this one tree that we're talking about? Obviously, at UCSF, there were a number of trees that were being removed here. It's only one. Uh, but um, what would be the the equivalency cost, I guess? Uh, thank you, Commissioner. So if um, 15, I'm just doing a little math here. One way to do it is that a direct diameter uh, equivalent. So we have a 15 inch more or less diameter tree. Um, how many 24 inch box trees could you, would it take to, um, reach that same diameter of the tree removed. So 15 inch diameter, you could uh, divide that by one inch, one inches potentially, depending on where you're measuring uh, the replacement tree from. A replacement tree may be anywhere from one to 1 1.5 inches in diameter, depending on, on where the caliper is measured. So um, we don't have an exact number for that, that, that Public Works uses, but it would be more like 1.5, it would be somewhere around, say, seven to 10 replacement trees, you know, um, to, to get that diameter value. Thank you. And one, one short follow-up question, sorry to my fellow commissioners. Um, it sounded, I, I believe I heard that the replacement in this location is not an option due to other various factors. Um, Similar to what we talked about last week, if if there were to be these replacement trees ordered, um, could they go in other parts of this neighborhood or other neighborhoods across the city uh, if if such replacement trees were required, say? Yes, we the way we do it is we assess the appraised the appraised value. 
And then that money goes into our adopt a tree fund, which does fund the planting of trees um, elsewhere across the city. So we do use those funds to to do that. Um, it's indirect. It's more part of a, a larger fund that helps support the planting of trees to achieve our urban forest plan. So not always specific, specifically tied to this particular permit. Um, for instance, if if the applicant were to have to plant five or six or 10 replacement trees, now I've got to police that and I've got to keep track of that. Whereas if we take the funds and we plant it and say, we're going to plant 50 trees in the tenderloin, we know where they are. They're part of this group. It's, it's a, from a management perspective, you know, and to be consistent with how we've handled similar cases, we've looked at um, the loss of replacement value, sorry, the loss of replace, the loss of value and use those funds to plant elsewhere. Um, and that's essentially what this fund is, is doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Commissioner Trisvinia. Uh, thank you. And, and thank you, Mr. Buck, for your continued work, especially uh, tonight when we've got the storm. Your team is out there risking their safety. And no matter how successful they are, we're going to lose some trees in San Francisco. And I hope it's a small number, but it's probably likely larger than one. We're here talking about this one one tree. I, um, I am. I was interested in, in during in your submission, um, Director Order One Eighty Seven Two Forty Six, and as I read it, and I do want to read it for my colleagues. I, I'm I'm wondering how uh, how that those requirements are applied here. Uh, and as I read it, it says that in select cases, if the tree proposed for removal can be replaced with a tree or trees that matches or exceeds the canopy and trunk diameter of the tree to be removed, public works may grant the removal application. The canopy and the tr trunk diameter of the replacement trees must match or exceed that of the tree to be removed at the time of planting. It seems to me that you have the ability to um, uh, grant uh, the the removal, uh, and I'm wondering what what factors went into to to not applying your authority under 187-246. Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, great question. So um, one of the one of the things to to point out is the the challenge of when you remove a tree that's a 15 inch diameter tr trunk, you know, you're realistically really constrained with planting a like size replacement in the sidewalk that is that large. It's much easier to do that on um, open space area, you know, at, at Apple Park than Cupertino or Golden Gate Park, but really difficult to do that in the street tree because the amount of roots that you need to, to be able to put back in the ground with the replacement tree. One thing I will say is we we have we have used that section of our code when the subject trees are a little bit smaller. So we have seen some young trees like planted just a few years ago and and we'll prove it at the staff level because we know for a fact they can plant they can replace with a 36 or 48 inch box tree. So we've been using that section of the code for for much smaller trees where we you can physically look at the two trees to be removed and the one sitting in the nursery to be planted. We will approve that. So I do want to say that we we try to find ways to be um, creative and 
and and not just stand on principle alone, but say, you know what, this is realistic, this is fine. The only other factor, um, you asked kind of the factors impacting that. Before Street Tree SF passed or Prop E, in, which became effective in 2017, public works didn't maintain all the street trees. So it was not really an option for public works to really suggest to a property owner that if they remove a tree and can plant the diameter equivalency of a replacement tree, like instead of one big 15 inch tree, but like a 15 one inch trees, we couldn't guarantee the the maintenance of those trees. And and they would be planting trees in front of properties that that adjacent owner would then be responsible for maintaining. So it was a very iffy proposition. I do think um, with examples like UCSF in mind that we do need to be looking at equivalency diameter replacement and, and really try to spell that out perhaps in that same director's order, revise it to come up with other ways. But if there was a way for the property owner to realistically put back a 15 inch tree right in that same frontage, um, you're right, the, the director likely may approve that, but it's just not realistic. And one other question, if I may, uh, from an ecological standpoint, is there any difference between planting a tree on that street in front of that house, as opposed to one on the other side of, of town or near or in some other area for the city's green uh, obligations and goals? Sure. Um, absolutely. We, the urban forest plan uh, has performed a census of all the trees we have in the city. And there are certain neighborhoods where um, historically folks have been more interested and eager in planting trees and have a, a far greater quantity of trees. So we do use the urban forest, the adopt a tree fund to plant trees uh, in neighborhoods that have the lowest uh, canopy cover. There, we know where they are. We have them well documented. Um, in fact, we know where most of the potential new sites can be. So that is something that would occur. So the funds from the appraised value will go towards furthering those planting goals in those communities. Thank you. Thank you, President Swig. Um, thank you. I'm going to go on a different track. Um, uh, the <clears throat> after hearing your presentation a couple of weeks ago on why we do not allow trees to get cut down, um, and unless it's a the most dire of circumstances. And we discussed many examples of that. Uh, the thought that we're even having this discussion um, is, uh, yeah, is is confusing, um, especially when it's in the context of uh, not 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 only the um, adding support to uh, a foundation of a of an existing house, but really the addition of a, a garage. Um, and, but, uh, that being said, what is not entirely, and so I'm, I'm really on the fence on this, um, because what's, what is not in, does not entirely pass muster is th that, um, several houses in Pacific Heights, 
Presidio Heights, um, have had uh, garages added. And uh, in, as part of the cost of adding that garage, uh, not at the cost in a monetary standpoint, but from an environmental standpoint and a, a tree beautification standpoint, um, there was the sacrifice of a tree to get a car or two in a garage. Um, but it, it was approved. And so why shouldn't this applicant be afforded uh, the same opportunity as others who have come before him um, when uh, they have applied and received permits to uh, build garages and at the, at the cost of, uh, of a tree. That, that fundamentally is the thing that's bugging me here. You know, on one hand, and I, I need you to really get, give me some, some prayer on this. Um, on, the, on the one hand, uh, we sat two weeks ago and basically said, you know, uh, trees, uh, trees are the holy grail. And we don't we don't tear tear down trees for any reason whatsoever, almost, uh, unless we you know it's a dire situation, and we really really have to. And then, you know, then there there are the 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 fees associated with that, uh, and and then uh, we have here the the situation where it's not a dire situation. I mean, they could probably redo the. Uh, their foundation without tearing out this tree, but it really is the accommodation of a garage, which has been given to other neighbors. So why shouldn't it be given to him? The, give me some, give me some testimony on that, will you, Mr. Buck? Uh, thank you, Commissioner Swig. I think one one way to respond to that is that there. Projects used to be approved by planning to have a garage or driveway installed, and then the applicant was realized, okay, I need a tree removal permit. The process now has the applicant going to us first to understand the what's going to happen with the tree. What might even be better in the future is if both the project and the tree itself could be considered at the same time so that neighbors on the block who might support the project, might hear neighbors across the city who are an advocate for saving every tree. It's not a perfect process, but it is one that's improved um, because for many years we were coming to you all and um, projects were literally completely issued. There was a site permit. Um, that's one indirect way of, of answering this question. I think one, one answer is when someone, we weren't, were not able to assess the appraised value until somewhat recently. If someone could plan a replacement tree, even if that replacement tree was tiny, we couldn't do an appraised value and get a replacement tree at the same time. It was, it was considered double dipping and Carla Short had pointed out to us that we'd always rather, we'd always prefer a replacement tree than taking uh, appraised value um, so that was that was a factor. So one thing that's been changed is folks have said, you know what, if this is going to be the way it is, then Bureau of Urban Forestry really needs to be compensated for the loss of, of that value of that landscape material. So the Department of Public Works um, has a Bureau of Urban Forestry, and our goal is to protect, enhance, and expand the urban forest. Um, we have other city agencies in the city that have other goals. 
you have the planning department who understandably wants to work within what's permittable to allow an owner to realize the maximum value or potential of their own home. Um, and so we've come before a board of appeals again and again and again, where public works is saying, we just aren't there on approving this. We need to stick to what we do and what, what our mission is. Um, now that said, even if we public works approve that, you may have the public who says, no, that's, that's not a good deal. We're, you're favoring autos over, over pedestrians. Um, so there's no easy answer on it. It's a, it's a constant conflict. We usually have at least five of these cases come before you a year, each year. I will say we at least have two trees in this particular case. Um, and again, if a tree is in poor condition, I want to emphasize that public works staff would acknowledge the low value of a tree and not stand in the way, but say, you know what, that particular tree, no value. It's, it's a removal candidate. So a lot of the times through coincidence, someone comes to us and they go, I love this tree. You'll never let me remove it. And we see a crack down the middle or, or it's a species that's not, not doing well. So every situation to provide a little bit of solace is every situation is different. It's unique. Um, but we're always, we're always here and it, and I understand your frustration. Am I, you know, what, uh, just to, to finish up, cause I, I want my fellow commissioners to hear this question and, and cause I don't have a direction, uh, but I have questions. Um, I, I could see, uh, it, 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 is there not a case, a slam dunk case that, well, we can't tear down this tree because it, it's it's only self-serving to the, uh, please, the appellant, please don't take the offense to this, okay? Um, uh, it, it only serves the, the appellant and his own private nature of needing a, uh, a, a garage. And so, uh, it, it, you know, based on, based on what, Buff has always told us uh, trees come first, garages come second, or self-serving issues come second. And so we got to keep that tree. That's the way it is. Or if we, if if for some reason Buff moves on this, the, the fee should be very high. Or is it a slam dunk the other way where of course this tree can be taken down because precedents have been set within the neighborhood, multiple occasions where trees have come down to build garages, to get cars off the street and protect the interests of the neighborhood and, and the individual. So there's a slam dunk there and there's a slam dunk there. What's the answer? You got something for me or should we just leave it to the commissioners? And and then I'll pass along to, uh, I think Mr. Lopez or Mr. Epler is next. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I, I think, again, we try to look at what is the overall health of the tree. We, for instance, we've never judged a, a driveway or garage application based on, you know, the fact that it's um, mid-century or, you know, we're, we, we start with blinders on. What is what is the tree itself? Is this tree in good condition? Um, it could be a tree in poor condition, repeated sidewalk damage, and when you make that sidewalk repair and install the driveway, it's going to impact tree roots, and there's just no way, no realistic way that we can we can work around that tree. 
So we start with tree health itself. Is this a tree that's worth uh, preventing removal of? Again, a lot of cases, you don't hear as many cases because there's a lot of times when this works out well in a sense that a tree is getting removed that's not in good condition and there's room to replace it still at the site. What I, I do want to emphasize is at least to this applicant's credit and it, you know, to help move a needle or provide some guidance for where um, commissions have been hung up in the past is removal without replacement. And we're not, we're not there. We're actually going to have an existing tree number one of the east will remain. And I think that is significant, is that they're not removing um, and removing both trees with zero replacement, but they can retain that tree one. I do, um, you know, I'm sensitive to that. So the combination of them retaining tree one, uh, which is not always the, the case or possible, but also paying the appraised value for the loss of what's being removed. At this point in time, it just feels like that's, that's the best we can do. Our preference is to keep it, but as you said, precedence over the years um, has turned out differently. Thank you. Are you finished, President Swig? Yes, thank you. Thank you. We will now hear from Vice President Lopez. Thank you, uh, and thanks for the presentation, uh, Mr. Buck. A couple of questions uh, on on that note of the the tree one uh, preservation. If if we go down the hypothetical of you know five or ten years from now, uh, we have a request for the removal uh, in the future of this tree one. Uh, is there infrastructure in place to 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 have uh, a record and um, and have this context of any uh, tree removals that have occur occurred on the property that may, you know, provide some context to to future uh, decisions that 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 may need to be made about future removal requests. Uh, yes, Commissioner Lopez. Um, one thing the applicant or appellant had proposed was a was a nine month sort of look back if that tree that remains um, is impacted through construction in any way. What I would recommend at a minimum would be a five-year kind of look back. You know, sometimes these impacts from construction may take a year or two to, um, to sort of reveal themselves. I, I do think a five-year uh, look back starts getting us into the, the issue of pittosporum decline. And I'm sympathetic to the applicant and their arborist who would, would agree that that's not, you know, their fault that the species is susceptible uh, to those impacts. So to that end, I mean, I would, you know, the permit could be conditioned on the property owner needing to remove and replace tree number one, should it, you know, decline to such a degree that it requires removal in the next five years. Um, that's something that we can put in the, the permit so that there's some assurance that uh, that would alle alleviate uh, our bureau from one site. We could focus on other areas um, that are in greater need. Got it. And the, to, the, to the question of, um, you know, you, you touched upon, you know, different, different neighborhoods being uh, both more receptive to new trees and then presumably more uh, conducive to, to new tree planting just in terms of 
uh, available sites and, you know, greenfield, so to speak, uh, pun partially intended, but how does that, like, what, what, what are some of those neighborhoods that come to mind, um, you know, without, obviously without the benefit of notes and stuff, but oh. what are some of those neighborhoods and then where does this neighborhood fall on that kind of spectrum? Sure. So the the neighbor the mo the neighborhoods most in need are or that have the the least amount of trees per block are generally in the southeast area of the city. It's also unfortunately where we have the greatest number of highways. Um, the sewage treatment plant that treats eighty percent of the city's waste, and then we also had the two uh, polluting power plants in Hunters Point and Potrero Hill. Now those power plants are shut down, um, which is a great next step. But um, unfortunately, yes. So we, the environmental justice issue, like the green fields or the brown fields concept is something that we're, many city agencies are well aware of, just like you'd say there's a food desert in certain communities. We have a, a green deficit in the Southeast area of the city. So Bayview, Hunters Point, uh, the Portola, which is how locals pronounce it, not Portola, uh, Excelsior, Visitation Valley, Outer Mission, um, Crocker Amazon, you know, Little Hollywood, and then uh, the sunset in the Richmond, some areas of the West, uh, because of the wind, uh, have very few trees. And again, it's not because people are uh, not thinking about wanting a, a healthy environment. It's just a matter of um, sometimes discretionary time and, and what you have time to advocate for and systematic injustices that are, are well documented. So with that said, yes, we, we have the tree counts. Um, the the city only planted one third of the street trees along the main transit thorough thoroughfares and corridors as transportation improvements historically, like in the 50s and 60s. So neighborhoods that um, were residential, where there's just that generic feeling of when you buy a new home, one of the first things you do would be to plant a tree, you know, and, and make it your own. Um, and that's that's a tradition that a lot of people have followed. So. Um, the northern neighborhoods, the older neighborhoods that were built first, um, not this isn't you know to to knock anyone, but some of these neighborhoods are literally older, and so people have been around longer and have been living there longer and have taken steps to to plant trees. So like in the northern and then the central, like Noe Valley, Eureka Valley. So um, the high high count areas are Noe Valley, Eureka Valley, Castro, uh, parts of Western Edition. Um, and, and some parts of the Pacific Heights as, as well. Um, anyway, that's a little bit of a, sorry, I took too much time, but a little bit of an overview. We know where the needs are for sure and the reasons and, and the challenges. So to, to narrow it down to, to this decision, if, if we end up going the uh, removal and 11K route, uh, that 11K will essentially go towards uh, planting trees in some of these higher need areas. Yes, absolutely. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Commissioner Lemberg. Sorry, one more question. I want to ask the, uh, the the flip side of what Vice President Lopez just asked, and that is, if we were to uh, uphold the decision, the DPW decision what would the next steps for the appellant be? They have this open 
you know, planning that a permit that's already been approved. Um, what, uh, but this order basically just says, no, you can't do it. So what would their next step be if we go the other direction? Is that a, a question I should tackle? Yes. Okay, sure. Um, so great question. And can I just interject? Matthew Green told me the permit has not yet been issued. So, oh. So, so Commissioner, um, the typically the, the proposal is in theory um, accepted or, you know, it's pending the tree removal decision. Typically, what we ensure is that a project doesn't stall and, and we have trees that get removed and not a project. So they, a planning would want to see that the proposed tree removal has been approved and overturned. Um, so that's something that we just do internally through permit tracking system. Um, the applicant has, an appellant has submitted a, a very um, good tree protection plan. I didn't compliment them on that, but I, their brief and their protection plan um, is, you know, admirable. Um, and so we have the protection plan, the desire to retain and protect that tree one on the right is, is clear. Um, so not a lot would have to happen. We would uh, just communicate internally that um, the removal will would potentially be approved on the condition that all other permits are received for the project. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We are now moving on to public comment. Is, is there anyone here to provide public comment on this item? Please raise your hand. Okay, I don't see any public comments. So we'll move uh, back to the appellant, uh, Mr. Zucker or Mr. Hilkowskis, you have three minutes. Thank you. Victorian box trees are in decline. The exact cause and cure are unknown. Consequently, as noted by Buff, it's very likely the street trees in front of the property will perish due to pitiform decline, no matter what. This is an opportunity to install two more appropriate street trees nearby an empty well, or to receive payment to go to the adopted tree fund that will plant new trees elsewhere in the city. And were the existing trees to remain fail from construction within nine months, it will be replaced in a relocated tree well. As to the five-year look back recommended by Bureau of Urban Forestry, that seems to me a little bit excessive, especially considering it only takes three years for a tree to be deemed mature and become the responsibility of the city per Prop E. And the fact that drought impacts and tree maintenance, which is the responsibility of the city, both are outside of the applicant's control. This tree could result in decline for other reasons not related to this construction project within five years, um, but as framed, it seems that they would be saddled with that burden. Additionally, because the property is in a historic district, the project required careful design to not adversely impact any resources. The project has been designed in a consistent manner with the neighborhood. The project seeks the same features as nearly every single other property on the block. The planning department determined the project is consistent with the character defining features of the district and will not impact the structure's ability to convey its significance as a contributor to the district. And the neighbors have submitted letters in support. We appreciate the notion that trees will be added as development comes forward in the future or elsewhere. However, planting trees now gets trees in the ground now and adds to the urban canopy now not at some time in the future. 
And as we've heard, time is what results into in young trees becoming mature, and so sacrosanct. The project is compliant with the Urban Forestry Ordinance, which includes provisions for situations like this. A robust tree protection plan has been established and will be followed, and the eastern tree is anticipated to be preserved. The tree protection plan calls for enlarging the eastern tree well by more than 175% from nine square feet to 16, erecting a protective fence barrier and post-construction arborist reassessment. The tree to remain is being given a new lease on life, so to say, with these mitigation measures. We appreciate there's a difference in opinion on the valuation of the trees to be removed. As proposed in the brief, appellants are willing to find common ground, either through planting two trees nearby or through payment of the uh, appraised fee. We request you grant this appeal and allow the removal of the Western Street tree to go forward. Thank you. And we are available with any for any questions. Thank you. I don't see any questions at this time. So, Mr. Buck, do you have anything further? You have three minutes. Uh, thank you, Commissioners. Chris Buck with Public Works, Bureau of Urban Forestry. Um, just a couple of things to, to reiterate. These are very challenging cases. Um, the pub, you know, the permit, the denial of the permit, we do not believe was issued in error. So from a, a strictly um, procedural matter, you know, we don't believe the, the permit itself was issued in error. We've received permit applications to remove trees that are in conflict with garages for decades. We try to be as consistent as possible we try to judge the overall tree health so that you don't have arborists trying to um, put on planters hats. And so we try to focus on tree health. And when we come across a tree or trees that are in good condition and a generally good species, you know, we, we advocate for their, for their retention. Um, again, overall, to be consistent with how we've handled similar cases, this tree at 15 inches in diameter can't realistically be replaced as is, as one of the commissioners brought up. We have been trying to get creative. We've been here with really small trees, much smaller. And when we heard that feedback, like, wow, they can really just replace this with a brand new tree. Why are we here? So smaller trees, we're, we're doing that. We're trying to do what we can to both protect the urban forest and be reasonable. Um, and a lot of the times it has to do with tree species. I will say one um, curveball with the case before us this evening is that this is a, up until 10 years ago, a great, great street tree. We have thousands of these trees planted throughout the city all across in, in, in every neighborhood. Um, so it's not a fringe uh, tree species. It's one, you know, we have a number of them on the block. I put that in my brief. So the block and the city is slowly being impacted by pittosporum decline, but it's not a death sentence and trees are unique. And just like Monterey pines and pitch canker, pitch canker um, respond differently we can't issue a flat out, you know, death sentence for the trees just based on the species because a lot of them will prove us wrong. I will say overall, we are very happy with the tree protection. Left. We're very pleased with the tree protection plan, the efforts the appellant has put into their brief. Um, the applicant has been reasonable to work with. 
Um, we're just stuck in a, in a policy bind. So if the decision is overturned, we do ask that the appraised value of 11,200 be assessed as part of that permit approval. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Commissioners, this matter is submitted. Uh, commissioners, who would like to start? <clears throat> See, if we were in the in the room, I'd ask uh, Commissioner Lopez to start. So why not go there? Thanks, uh, President Swig. So, so yeah, I I, I do I do consider it a a tough case. That's that's close to the line. I would say that my initial reaction would either be to support. Uh, denying the appeal or or granting um with uh the conditions that the 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 buff assessed value uh be be honored and also preserving a five-year look back uh like buff uh, proposed during uh during mr buck's statements um i think the 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 points that 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 make um the latter option uh, a possibility in my mind are the fact that there would be a remaining tree and i do think that uh with the assessed value uh there would be um you know i think a, a lessening of of the impact to the the canopy as a whole um you know, even if it's going to be further into the future, once the newly planted trees uh, would come into maturity, but I do think that that there would be um, some benefit there. But but that's if 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 we were if we were um, talking about two thousand dollars, which in my mind was not convincing, uh, versus eleven, and frankly, I found eleven even to be you know supremely reasonable. I think we could probably um, you know assess these uh at, at, at higher levels but um but that's that's kind of a, a collection of my thoughts mr trisvenia uh thank you thank you president swig i am um always informed by mr buck as to the issues that are facing the city with the urban forest and the canopy uh, and and also the different uh the different conditions and circumstances of our various neighborhoods. So as I see uh, it here, uh, I appreciate uh, Mr. Buck's willingness to uh, acknowledge the, the work of the, of the appellant uh, and, and in terms of the plan uh, and, and, and an alternative solution. I would say that we should not err with, there, there is a danger in minimizing the importance to the homeowner as compared or, or comparing a homeowner, a single homeowner to an important institution like UCSF. There, there are clearly differences between the two, but as for the person in their home, their, their, their safety, uh, their, uh, their, their property is extraordinarily important to them. And I, uh, and I believe that um, the, there is the, ability within the director's order, which I read, to look at the public aspects of having a car off the street and in a garage, 
uh, and and as as well as just not just an individual benefit, but but more of a public benefit. And finally, I would say that if we resolve this in a way that increases the number of trees, uh, we are able to, in effect, uh, have an impact on areas of the city that are more tree deserts rather than areas that have a high degree of, of, of tree uh, tree uh, presence. So I would I would uh, my my view is that we should uh, grant uh, the appeal along with the along with the um, uh, requirement of of, uh, uh, of the payment to uh, at the amount that the uh, that the city has uh, determined. Thank you, Commissioner Epler. Oh, sorry, Commissioner Lemberg, going out of line. Thank you, President Swig. Um, although I admittedly, my uh, my logic follows a different line than Commissioner Transvenia's. I uh, agree with his conclusion. Uh, and I think that's probably the best path forward is, is granting the appeal with the buff uh, assessed value of uh, for replacement. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Commissioner Epler. Thank you. Um, I think that uh, we're, we're, we're approaching a, a conclusion here um, because my conclusion is the same. For me, this is a, a set of balancing of, uh, a set of balancing of considerations of policy considerations. And, you know, the policy considerations have changed. They've changed on both sides of the equations in some way. Uh, one is we don't have the unfettered right to remove trees in the city that we may have once had at certain times when other uh, projects were done in uh, parts of the city that have a uh, great deal of canopy. And secondly, this tree in and of itself is not the you know vibrant contributor to the urban forest that it once was due to disease issues. And so getting hung up on this particular tree in this particular location is um, a bit of an issue when countervailed by the property rights of the, the owner. That said, um, we do have a policy for increasing and maintaining the canopy, and this is an opportunity through the paying of the in-lieu fee to add to the canopy in places where it will have maximal impact over time. And so I, I do get to the same conclusion as my fellow commissioners. Okay. Um, thank you, uh, Commissioner Trusenia, for your summary. I uh, agree with it uh, and would go along with um, a motion of yours following the same uh, path. I'm a little s sensitive to the fee, although I would accept Buff's fee. I agree with Commissioner Lopez or Vice President Lopez uh, that it, it's a a low price to pay for such a substantial tree, uh, but I would go along um, uh, your your motion as you presented us presented us presented it. Uh, unless uh, Vice President Lopez wanted to further argue that of the fee point, or Mr. Buck has a, a any comment to the to the effect. Chris, do you have any further comment on the fee? On the on the regarding the fee, thank you, Commissioner. Um, our basic in lieu fee is two thousand three hundred and two dollars. So, the appraised value of this one tree at eleven thousand two hundred dollars allows us to plant four point eight six replacement trees. So we can plant nearly five replacement trees in 
an area of the city that desperately needs more trees. So that is um, that is a real value while also uh, protecting and preserving an existing tree. So um, just providing that perspective. Thank you. Uh, does that work for you, uh, Commissioner Lopez, or do you have an alternative? No, that, that works for me. I, I, I'm hearing, you know, alignment on that point uh, among the, the commissioners. Uh, I guess I would ask to my fellow commissioners uh, for some input on this look back period. Um, you know, whether whether that's uh, the the five year look back that Buff suggested is something that we can get comfortable with. Why don't we ask Commissioner Trezvina to uh, see how he would like whether he would like to put that as part of his impending motion? I have no strong strong views on that point. I would I would ask uh, Commissioner Lopez to uh, if if he'd like to add it, I would entertain uh, uh, an addition. Yeah, I'd like to add that. No problem for me. Okay. Uh, so you want to make a motion with uh, with uh, Ms. Rosenberg's assistant, if necessary, because of course she's really good at it. Okay. I just also want to clarify for the third condition regarding the east tree. Um, if it requires removal uh, within five years of what the issuance of the certificate of final completion. I mean. I'm seeing Mr. Buck nod. Is that right? I mean, yeah. yes, exactly. Because okay. that would be the when the project is fully completed. Okay, so that could be a couple of years because they haven't even had the building permit yet. Is that what you're envisioning, Vice President Lopez? Yeah, I think that's I think that's part of the objective, right? Is to to wait until the project is completed for any kind of adverse impacts that may result to have the clock start there. Okay. So Commissioner Trezvina, did you want me to um capture your points in a motion or did you want to make the motion or that, that, that would be fine. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I believe the motion uh, that Commissioner Trezvina would like to make is to grant the appeal and issue the order on the condition that it be revised to require one, um, to allow the removal of the Western tree, two, require the determination holder to pay $11,200 appraisal fee to the city's adopt a tree fund, and three, uh, if the East tree requires removal of um, within five years of the certificate of final completion of the project, then the determination holder will have to uh, remove and replace that tree. And can we clarify where that replacement would be? Because I understand the current site isn't really feasible. Mr. Buck? Uh, yes, um, Ms. Rosenberg, The in the appellant's brief, they had identified um, a reasonable location where that replacement tree could um, reasonably be planted. So I believe there's room as as they highlighted in the in the brief. I thought they um, just I, had an empty tree well close by, but I, they didn't specify a location or did they? There, there, there's a yes. So there is an there's an alternate plan to um, plant, but I also see the um, appellants council. Um, may want to clarify one item. Okay. Mr. Zucker? 
Yeah, it's exhibit D to the brief in support identifies a location where the tree well can be relocated. Okay. Thank you. We can make that part of the order then to the location in exhibit B. Okay, so so um and what are you making this motion? What is the basis of this motion, Commissioner Chesvinia? Uh, the, the the basis of the motion is that the uh, department erred in not fully um, not fully uh, taking into account al al alternatives uh, to non-removal and the public interest in the underlying project. Okay. Okay, so uh, on that motion, uh, one moment, uh, Vice President Lopez? Aye. Commissioner Lemberg? Aye. Commissioner Epler? Aye. President Swig? Aye. So that motion carries five to zero, and that concludes this matter. We are now moving on to item seven. Is everyone okay? Do they need a, we, a, a five minute break? Can we take a five minute break, please? Nope. Be, be back at, uh, why don't we, um, let's be back at eight o'clock. Let's do 11 minutes. Okay, great. Thank you. We'll see you Thank in 10 you. minutes. Thank you. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
welcome back to the meeting of the Board of Appeals, January 4th, 2023. We are now on item number seven. This is a special item, discussion of possible action. On September 8th, 2022, the SFMTA advised the Board of Appeals that it would discontinue the practice of having the BOA hear appeals related to taxi permit decisions. On November 16th, 2022, the commissioners considered the possibility of sending a letter to the SMMTA, which explained the factors considered by the board when deciding these types of cases, and two, discussed whether other agencies have the authority to add or to take away these types of matters that fall within the jurisdiction of the Board of Appeals. The commissioners agreed without a vote to place an item on the December 7th, 2022 agenda, which expanded on the discussion. On December 5th, 2022, after the agenda for the BOA hearing on December 7th had already been published, the SFMTA rescinded the discontinuation of the consent to allow taxi permit decisions to be heard by the BOA. The purpose of the rescission was to allow the SFMTA and BOA time to engage in further consultation on the matter at the board level. On December 7th, 2022, upon motion by President Swig, the board voted 5-0 to zero to, to direct the Executive Director and Vice President Lopez to draft a letter to the SFMTA covering the issues identified by Vice President Lopez at the hearing. More specifically, one, whether it was appropriate for the MTA to discontinue the practice of allowing taxi permit appeals to be heard by the BOA, and two, if the BOA would no longer hear taxi permit appeals, the factors considered by the BOA when making decisions on these cases. The draft letter is being considered tonight. So, Vice President Lopez. Uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Executive Director. Um, you know, the the agenda includes the the letter that that I drafted, and so um, you know, just to quickly touch on the the high level points for uh, the benefit of my fellow commissioners, the benefit of the public. Uh, we're essentially, um, you know, stating that uh, there are some some public uh, benefits, some decision making benefits to having these matters uh, stay with the board, um, including, you know, having an independent body composed of members appointed by both the mayor and the board of supervisors. Um, and and then also you know touching on you know if if the the agency does decide to move forward with its initial plans that are as of today paused um you know we we wanted to kind of submit for consideration uh some elements that that we think are important uh for uh, for the, the the agency's hearing officers, or if there were to be some kind of uh, legislative amendment someday to incorporate uh, another kind of uh, forum for for hearing of these issues, uh, I think the point that we want to the in my mind we want to convey is that issues uh, you know related to um, you know administrative equity. Uh, should be considered uh, things like um, uh, the 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 term is is failing me uh, for a second here, but um, you know unjust reliance on the agency's guidance that uh, that that the 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 medallion renewals did not require an A card, which we saw in several cases, uh, in other kind of you know equitable. Um, you know principles that may 
you know, also be, um, you know, potentially possible in other hearings that, that may arise in the future. And I think, uh, generally speaking, there, there had been a stance that, um, that, you know, if it's not in, in the, within the, the listed kind of elements in, in article 11 of, uh, the transportation code, uh, that, 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 that was not to be considered, uh, either by the hearing officers or e even in our decisions. And I think we, we saw, uh, in, in a few of these cases, not on all of them, but in a few of them, we did see that it was appropriate to, uh, to look at some of these equitable principles, uh, when reaching a decision. Um, and then lastly, I think there's, there's a point here, uh, to back to the, the question of whether the the matter should stay with the board uh there's there's been and at least a couple of cases that have come before us uh some you know not unjustified questioning of the independence of the the existing uh uh agency's hearing officer process uh, really related to i think some communications that we saw uh in, in a couple of our uh, cases related to uh, the the agency's counsel, you reaching out to hearing office officers about uh, potentially reconsidering decisions, and you know I didn't um, you know want to make you know summary kind of conclusions based on that because we didn't you know really delve into that deeply, but but I would say that you know the questions were raised uh, both by the appellants. Uh, and and by the public, and I think it's it's at least worthy of being considered uh, that that the optics of that you know may not have been uh, ideal to promote um, you know a sense of of trust uh, in the independence of uh, of that process. And so I do think, uh, by contrast, uh, you know our our body and in our process and and our body's composition uh, does lend itself uh, to. Uh, to withstand more of that scrutiny uh, should it should it come before us. So that's a high level overview of of what's in here. Obviously, it's it's um, you know drafted by me, but coming uh, you know from from all of us. So I think it's really important to get uh, everybody's input and welcome uh, your feedback and and would look forward to incorporating that input uh, if we want to make revisions to this. Commissioner Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to thank President Lopez, uh, Vice President Lopez, for his initiative and leadership to to craft uh, this letter. Um, it's an important message to demonstrate our commitment to work with another city agency and and delineate for the public our respective governmental and institutional interests. Uh, I, I don't. I don't really have to subscribe to every phrase and every point uh, in the letter to enthusiastically endorse it. It's overarching principles, which I do. Uh, I'm concerned, however, um, by the likelihood of misunderstanding associated with describing equity in relation to our decision making. There's the, as Vice President Lopez and other lawyers on this committee know. The traditional legal definition that's used in Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution describing 
cases in law and equity. Uh, but there's also the now common use of the term related to fairness based on legally protected classes or remedial action to correct historic discrimination. I would not want to I would not want use of the term in the letter to suggest that we did not decide cases on matters beyond the record or in place of the law and facts presented, uh, nor that, that we are over reliant on the exceptions uh, in order to justify a particular outcome. Uh, I believe that our recognition, for example, of the evidence related to drivers with disabilities fits squarely within the local, state, and federal applicable law, and not for the less precise purpose of equity. Uh, there's nothing we could debate the issues of equity all night, which I would not want to do. I just think that that it, it, it adds to, it, it, it creates a little bit of confusion as to what our role has been. But to me, the letter comes down, it very effectively comes down to this, the importance of independent review of agency decisions. That's the reason the mayor and the board of supervisors in the city have established the board of appeals in the first place. Yes, there's a value in the expertise of the agency in making its own decisions, but that value can still be obtained. Uh, we, are not, we are not excluding the agency from its role. They are the initial decision makers over a permit uh, and the agency's position is presented to our board. What we provide is the ex expertise and experience in evaluating arguments, ensuring public participation, and following appropriate procedures. Uh, the agency itself is less able and is seen as less able to balance its own institutional needs and the property and liberty interests of the public. And I say that advisedly, uh, and I, I'm particularly appreciative of Vice President Lopez highlighting, as he did in the letter and also uh, just now, about what we heard from the agency and the appellants about the MTA attorneys going back to the hearing officer after an adverse decision. That in itself deserves further exploration and explanation to the public. Uh, finally, uh, the decision by the agency to pull back its future cases from this board is too closely associated, at least in time, and in the view of many, in substance, to the adverse decisions this board has made. So I would recommend to, to my colleagues that we support the letter uh, and that uh, it, become, it comes on a unanimous vote. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Commissioner Lemberg? Thank you. Um, I echo what Commissioner Shrasvinia just said, and I have uh, very minor additions or, or I guess, suggestions for um, edits. Uh, I, I agree that I think the, the phrasing of uh, equitable principles, which is used twice uh, in the letter, could potentially be misleading. Um, and so I would... I'm, I've been trying to craft a specific uh, replacement for it, um, but I, I I think something that goes into a little bit more detail rather than just equitable principles, something along the lines of, um, uh, you know, equitable defenses available in courts of law or something along that line. Um, and I would also suggest the inclusion of some additional equitable defenses. I'm. Uh, I, I, I'm a self-admitted uh, lover of equitable defenses, and I 
uh, would at least would want to include, in addition to estoppel uh, waiver, unclean hands and latches, which I think are, uh, you know, kind of four guideposts for decision making in both courts and uh, in this body too, even if, uh, uh, yeah, I, so that's, uh, that's my feedback. I, uh, other than that, I completely support the letter. I think it was very well drafted. And I thank you, Vice President Lopez and, and Julie for your um, collaboration in, in drafting this, what I think is a very important letter. Thank you, President Swick. Um, I, I agree with everything that's been said. I just want to underscore, <clears throat> I have a great belief in uh, the Board of Appeals. Uh, the core of my belief is that it is a body which is accessible uh, to just about anybody who wants to um, challenge either, either the issuance or the non-issuance of a permit or a license. Um, and if we take that away, uh, especially from a class like the taxi cab drivers, uh, that's really not advisable and really undermines uh, what the city offers in the form of the Board of Appeals. So um, the, my fellow commissioners have given uh, details on legal precedent and other things, but I'll just uh, I'll just base it on accessibility to being heard when you have something that you think is unfair related to a permit or a license. And I don't want that taken away from um, that, that group of people. Thank you. Mr. Epler? Uh, yes. Um, first, I want to thank uh, Commissioner Lambert for reminding me of the doctrine of latches. Um, that's that's a uh, something I don't run across in, in transactional law very often. Uh, it was a good reminder. Um, I want to want to thank uh, both uh, the executive director and uh, Vice President Lopez for um, this letter. If you know, I I'm sensitive that if you know we're we're riding as as the land kind of changes under us as we were geared up to write about why we why we needed to keep this and now why we should you know thank you for letting us have this but let's you know re assert why it is that we need to keep this. And so the posture changed um, a little bit. Um, I think that, you know, emphasizing our independence is, is very important. Um, I think that is the greatest value that we add and certainly the, the greatest value add to the other possible process that we have here. And um, I otherwise, you know, will sign on to this letter with what minor um, additions or corrections or changes may be made. Okay, thank you. We do have to take public comment. Uh, so I see the caller whose phone number ends in 3250. Please go ahead. You need to press star six to unmute yourself. Okay, go ahead. Uh, oh, hi. hi, Mary McGuire. I'm the taxi cab driver. Um, for the past few years, the MTA, uh, they've been riding roughshod over a group of senior citizen cab drivers that are really not well equipped to fight back. Um, debate as to where this suddenly came from, but perhaps as a result of uh, recommendations in the final report of consultant Bruce Schaller. One of those being that the number of K medallions be reduced in order to increase the value of purchase medallions. Um, MTA describes this new reforms as streamlining the permit process, uh, which is great if you're talking about buses running on time, 
but these are people's lives. And as President Swig said a few weeks ago, they're real people with real life problems. It's not just a name on the page. So some of these folks have fallen behind um, because the MTA now insists that everything be done online. And many don't have computers or email. Some have memory loss, vision problems, and they need extra assistance. So in that respect, they're not really being properly noticed. And combine this with the fact that at present, MTA hearings do not allow for, for extenuating circumstances. Uh, the record shows that hearing officers have been pressured to change decisions, which weren't favorable to MTA staff. Um, as you said in your letter, uh, given to the communication submitted to the record suggests that several decisions may have been reconsidered by FMTA hearing officers. A reasonable member of the public might question whether the SFMTA hearing officers are sufficiently independent. So um, yes, I'm a member of the public and I, I do question that. So taking all of this, uh, taking it all into account, I wanna say that we really need the right to appeal MTA decisions. And thank you, Vice President Lopez, and thank you, Board of Appeals, all, all of you. Um, and this letter is excellent. So thank you, thank you once again. Okay, thank you. So we will now hear from Marcelo Fonseca. Alec, can you promote him to panelists, please? Yes. One moment. Okay, Mr. Fonseca, please go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you. Welcome. I'm Marcelo Fonseca. I'm a career cab driver, medallion holder since 2009. I'd like to thank you for being fair to taxi permit holders. You heard every case and you gave every appellant a fair chance to present and argue their cases. I also, also I would like to thank you for working on this letter to Director Tumlin and the MTA board regarding jurisdiction of our due process rights. And just so you know, and I hate to say this, I do not trust the MTA and neither do I trust the city attorneys. Arms have been twisted and the bragged about ethical firewall has been jumped over so they could land on the throats of disabled medallion holders. I also the opinion letter sent to you by the city attorney's office about Prop A of 2007, claiming it has given the MTA plenary power over taxi-related issues is dubious. Does Prop A really give the MTA the authority to supersede the city charter and the business code to take away our due process rights to this Board of Appeal? I'd like to know that. And since no one seems to be clear on that. I sure hope you, you will challenge it in your letter. And since the MTA allows a three-year medical exemption of their questionable driving requirement based on temporary medical conditions, I would suggest that you also address in your letter the need of an exemption for those medallion holders who are, who are faced with permanent disabilities. The MTA rules are oppressive. They are unfair. 
humiliating and very possibly in violation of ADA laws. Disabled medallion holders cannot comply with those draconian regulations. We fear that if you do not challenge this assumed plenary power and do not establish jurisdiction over taxi appeals, the aging population of medallion holders- 30 seconds left. The aging population of medallion holders will be faced with the very same abuse you heard in previous cases. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. We will now hear from Carl McMurdo. Welcome, you have three minutes. Uh, thanks, Julie, you can hear me, right? Yes. <clears throat> the entire taxi driver community, including lease drivers and medallion holders, applauds your board for supporting permittee due process rights. Because the city charter and business and tax code regulations both provide for these basic rights, while also requiring you to hear our appeals, the August 22, 2022 city attorney's opinion letter that you no longer have jurisdictional authority is very suspect as to its accuracy. It also behooves you to stand up to the bully, so to speak. Commissioner Lopez has written a very articulate measured draft letter. There's one additional sentence I suggest you might add. On page two, the first full paragraph begins with, if the MTA ultimately decides that the BOA should not hear taxi permit appeals. My suggested addition is to first note the dubious nature of the jurisdictional opinion issued by the two deputy city attorneys that Prop A of 2007 overrides and supplants the city charter and the business and tax code regulations. On his second attempt to have the SFMTA board codify the gist of that advisement, Director Tumlin was only one vote short and he might get it, if they bring it back, he might get the fourth vote. We hope you stand ready, if necessary, to defend your own turf. On a separate but related matter, the Ninth Circuit Court mediated agreement in the ADA Sloan case appeal specified compensation rather than permit revocation for bona fide Prop K career drivers with medallions who become disabledly, disabled or too elderly to drive a taxi safely. However, the city attorney and agency continued to design policies which contra contravene the Ninth Circuit Agreement, which the city signed in year 2009. Um, there are other things I'll say at a future meeting about some of the draconian policies. Thank you very much all of you for your diligence and for the excellent draft letter tonight from Commissioner Lopez. Thank you. Is there any further public comment on this matter? Please raise your hand. I don't see any hands raised. I do see people in the attendee queue. Any further public comment, please raise your hand. Okay, so I don't see any further public comment. Commissioners, are we, uh, this matter submitted? President Swick, you're on mute. We can't hear you, President Swick. Sorry, sorry. <clears throat> so what we're doing is is um, uh, making a motion to affirm uh, our 
uh, support of Vice President Lopez's letter on our behalf. Is that correct? You're on mute now. <laughs> Julie, you're on mute. Thank you. Gotcha. Got me. Okay. No, we'd be making a motion to adopt the letter. I do believe that a few of the commissioners wanted some revisions. So what we could do is uh, adopt the letter and on the condition it be revised to require the revisions by you and Commissioner Lemberg and, um, and then direct me to send the letter out. Um, I could work with Commissioner Lopez on incorporating those revisions. And once he approves, we can send it out. Vice President Lopez, uh, I'm sorry, President Swig. Uh, no, I, I just uh, am asking for uh, procedural direction to move forward, and and I I, I was remiss in not uh, thanking Vice President Lopez tremendously for his initiative on writing this letter and the act of actually writing the letter uh, with, of course, your support, uh, Ms. Rosenberg. Thank you. Commissioner Lopez. Well, it's funny, funny you should, should mention that because I wanted to say that I was also remiss in not thanking Executive Director Rosenberg uh, for her support with this. Um, you know, I think by my count, about 50% plus of our motions uh, aren't made without her help. And this letter was no different uh, and wouldn't have been possible without uh, her uh, her work, and so definitely wanted to, to make sure that I corrected uh, that in the record. So thank you so much, Julie. Thank you. Uh, and and I think the uh, you know just to comment on the suggestions and additions, um, totally totally agree and and uh, happily adopt uh, those those changes and and look forward to incorporating those uh, in the final letter. Uh, there's one further thing I wanted to, uh, to add on uh, this, which is very important, especially to uh, the majority of the commissioners who have a, a limited tenure on this, uh, or a current limited tenure on this uh, commission. I hope your tenure is a long one and a healthy one. Um, uh, this, uh, this, this is what this commission can do. We are able to do things like this. And uh, I find it particularly admirable when a, an individual commissioner or the commissioners as a whole step up like this and say, you know, we need to be heard on this issue. We need, need to send a message to what, uh, the appropriate department or, or the board of supervisors for that matter. So um, this, is just, this is just not uh, a, a, a semi-weekly, um, uh, a quasi-judiciary body that rules on on this permit or that permit. Uh, th this is when we really get stuff done, and I want to compliment all of you for participating in in enriching uh, our our city by taking this step uh, to send this letter uh, as crafted. Thank you very much on that, Mr. Trevino. Yeah. Thank you, President. So I want to reiterate my appreciation for Vice President Lopez's work on this, as well as our executive directors. I, I reflecting upon what we've heard tonight, uh, I, I think we, and, and and as you said, President Swig, we have a, we have a role, but there's also a role that we don't have. 
we don't get to substitute our judgment as to how best the taxi industry ought to be run in San Francisco or how another commission should be run. But we can ensure in terms of as the Board of Appeals, how appeals come from various agencies. So I, 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 the, I heard some suggestions about other things being added to the letter, but uh, those I think are things left up to the jurisdiction and province of others uh, within, within and around City Hall. Uh, but to the, your final point, President Swig, uh, would, and, and Vice President Lopez, would you be um, uh, open to uh, uh, CCing the letter to, uh, the pre to the Board of Supervisors uh, and the Mayor so that uh, they can see, uh, the, the, they can get firsthand the views of our, of our uh, board. I would have no problem with that. Thank you. Uh, I'm supportive of that too. Hey, President Swig, you're on mute. So who has a motion? You wanna make your own motion? Uh, Vice President Lopez, sure. I'll make I'm, I'll make the motion that we uh, approve uh, the letter uh, contingent upon incorporating the input that's been voiced by the commission uh, this evening, and and ask Executive Director uh, Rosenberg to uh, to send a letter to um, to Mr. Tumlin, uh, CCing the Mayor and the Board of Supervisors. Okay. Um, just so just so we can specify for the record the revisions um, um, we would you're moving to adopt the letter on the condition to be revised to incorporate the revision by revisions by Al, uh, Commissioner Lemberg uh, basically adding equitable defenses uh, available in the court of law including waiver on clean hands and latches and in, also including the amendments by President Swig, uh, emphasizing how the Board of Appeals is accessible for the taxi industry and other members of the public versus a court of law. And then uh, we would be CCing this letter to the Board of Supervisors and Mayor. Is that right? Did I miss anybody's comments? I I would I would add, I mean, we... I would say that the the list of the equitable defenses that we voice here is probably not exhaustive. Like I know duress is another one, but we can we can go through including our including but not limited to. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> go through our law textbooks to look up some others, probably. Okay. And, um, and so we and should have. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I would I would add another one that um, that Commission Trasvina voice, which which I think is also compelling, is. Uh, uh, because I, I think it addresses some of the points that that had been raised uh, in earlier agency communications about uh, the lack of expertise in this body, uh, specific to uh, you know the, the agency's operations. And I think I'd, I'd like to include that. I think that's a compelling point that there's a countervailing uh, interest with our independence, and then also the fact that. By having the agencies appear before us, we we get the benefit of their expertise when they are uh, present uh, their their cases before the the board. Okay, we can add that, and then 
so I will incorporate those changes, assuming this is adopted, and then I think we should send it as soon as possible because I think the MTA has a board meeting on January 17th. So, yeah. Uh, okay, so on that motion by Vice President Lopez, Commissioner Trezvina? Aye. Commissioner Lember? Aye. Commissioner Epler? Aye. President Swig? Aye. So that motion carries five to zero and the letter is adopted as revised tonight. And that would conclude the hearing. Okay, now nobody has to drive home. Thank goodness. Have a safe, have a safe. Thank you all. Stay care. safe and drive. Yeah, thank you. Everybody. Have a good night. Thank you.